Go Loud presents the Talking Bollocks podcast. Episode 90 of the Talking Bollocks podcast brought to you by Go Loud. It's me, C.O.B. It's me, Terry Flower. And this week we're joined by... John Connors. John, how are you? I'm good. I'm laughing because the two of you are dying from EP and you don't even drink. Yeah. Oh, John, we're in a bad way. How straight, like... I try to explain to people, so, sober hangovers are a real thing, John. Like, they're fucking worse. Yeah. They aren't a fucking... John, bollocks. John, listen Listen, lad, the last time I was in EP, you don't even understand. I t- it took me two weeks to recover. And... And the tore me ligaments from dancing that hard. What's your man's name? Paul fucking, that fucking DJ. Paul McCabe. Bob, no, not Paul McCabe. Uh, international <laughs> Paul, Van, Paul Van Dyke. Ah, oh, that's heavy. So, I danced so hard to Paul Van Dyke when I woke up, I swear <laughs> to God, my leg was swelled. Yeah. And I had two more days to go. And I said to me cousin Bean, I said, Bean, I said, we have to go, man. I was crying. Yeah. I said, Bean, we have to go. And I didn't realise to walk back. And I walked back with my ligaments tore, boys. And I said, never again, I'm doing EP. Never, never again. You clock up some out the steps down there, don't you? That place is hell down it's there. It's its own country. Yeah. yeah. But what I mean is, John, see what, the way we don't gaggle. You don't expect to be in bits. Yeah. And oh my, look, I am genuinely still looking up. My skin's all over the shop. My yeah. hair. Like, I can't talk. I'm in bits. I flexed my ribs last week. So the first time, I, I didn't get out of cabin, I went down Friday. Mm. I was supposed to get down Friday as well. But I flexed me real, I said, I'm not down two nights in the caravan. And then doing the show and whatever. So I said, I'll get down on the Saturday. Went down the Saturday, we were down there all that night dancing away. Went to the forest drive, I lost Calvin and all. So I was like, fuck's sake, I'd never seen where the camper was around. Mm. No signal, couldn't get through them. So I said, what the fuck? So I was stuck with Martin, one of the boys. Ended up having to go back and sleep in his bleeding car with fractured ribs. Got about an hour's sleep, then had to go up try and function for the day and then do a live show sleep yeah. deprivation that's the worst that's, oh. that's the worst and that's what even drinking and drugs leads to anyway yeah. ultimately it's sleep deprivation that is the worst thing for a performance too yeah. like you're mad getting on the stage with no fucking sleep like. but in fairness we, I thought the show went very well actually. I was very happy the adrenaline takes over yeah. yeah it was no it is you heard the rush from the yeah. crowd John it's very hard to say I'm yeah. not going out there I remember it being in fucking I remember being in Australia I landed down to do my show, I landed down in Melbourne and I was up for like 30 hours or something. And I landed down, I got about two hours sleep because I had fucking bad fucking, um, what's it called? Jet lag. Jet lag. And I got two hours of broken up sleep, woke up, felt like shit, now really bad. Went on stage that night, 500 seater, fucking, and it's a one man show, so that's a fucking huge show for a one man show. And so you have to reach, because it's a big audience, you have to reach out to them. And I'm going, fuck, no energy. And I did that show, and then I went on to drink that night. I got about two or three hours sleep again, and then took the plane to Sydney, and then couldn't sleep in Sydney, and then I had to do a matinee show, and it was a terrible show, like I, I was no voice left. And then I had to do the evening show, but the evening show was on at eight o'clock, right? But all the Irish were down from doing the mining, right? Mm-hmm. And they're all mad, mad cunts, right? And they were all mouldy. And they were spending all the money because they're on big fucking money, three yeah. or four grand a week. So the barman or the manager of the fucking place won't fucking put the show on because he's going, let's just let it, let it keep going, the bar, let all the money. So the show starts at 10 o'clock at night on a Saturday in, in Bondi Beach, like full of Irish. And they all don't even know what they're going to see. They just know it's John Connors and it's Ireland's call. Yeah. They just want to see something Irish. And I swear to God, Right, I opened up the show 
can't sleep still, barely any sleep in four days, right? And I'm, I, I'm getting psychosis. It's that bad. And I'm trying to talk before it. And I'm trying to <clears throat> break my voice and I couldn't talk. And I just start screaming behind stage and I nearly fainted, right? Start seeing stars and all. Walks out, sits down on my stool, light comes on and you had to rig the stage for me so my voice could project. But just as the lights go on, rain comes down on the roof and the roof is a tin roof. So because they yeah. rigged the stage, it's even worse now. Yeah. So I have to reach even further and I have no energy and I don't even know if I know the lines now because my, my thoughts are scattered that bad. And I'm telling you, the noise of the people is unbelievable. This fella got on the phone in the middle of the show. Oh, it's, uh, it's John Connors. Yeah, I, I think it's a fucking a stand-up show, but he's sitting down. Right? <laughs> and this naughty fella goes, you shut the fuck up, you bastard. And then a, a, a Dublin fella, you shut up. Like he was really cultured. Yeah. And they all start fighting each other during the show and I'm going oh god please kill me the worst show ever so I'm reaching even harder and harder and harder and I know I'm thinking in my head I dealt with these mad bastards during the show before but you can't go aggressive with these because these are really mad these are like the fucking Aussies that went, went, went off the fucking convict ships they were yeah. that bad get me <laughs> so anyway I just said nothing and he started walking in and out buying bags of coke walking brisking right by my face <laughs> not giving a bollocks and then there's a point in the show where I stand up and when I did I put every bit of venom that was inside me to reach and just, and it was like anger at these bastards who were making me could just go through torture. And by the end of it all, I threw a post show, every show I did a post show. And I swear to God, I nearly fell asleep in the post show. I had psychosis, like, like literally just going, oh my God. And then I left and I snuck into the hotel and I slept for like 16, 17 hours straight. But that was rough, boys. But sleep deprivation. 100%. Hell. So that's why you didn't go to EP then? That's why you didn't go to EP. No, I fucking like I went down Friday and I was like, yeah, this is grand. And then you're sleeping in the in the camper van, but because like there's no official like this is Calvin's bed, this is your bed, wherever. It's like whoever gets in, wherever you fall is where you lay. Yeah. And obviously because people are on it. Now I'm not just saying my mates are on it because they're all gonna think I'm leading out in them, but you can hear everything in in campsite sound there. You know what I mean? Yeah. So if you're lying down in bed and you think someone's right at your window and you look out and you realise he's bleeding, he's 100 metres up the road, like you can hear the sound travels and everyone, it's constantly 24-7 down there. So you get no sleep on the Friday, you get no sleep on the Saturday. You walk, my mother woke up yesterday, my knees were killing me. I felt like I'd been running for ages. You know what I mean? You're doing all the steps. And then you're eating shit as well, John. Yeah. So you're running on fucking processed chicken. And the worst chicken burgers. And chips, you can get in the cold. Are there about 100 euro? It was, oh, it was 20 fuck. euro for a pizza down there. Oh my God. 20 quid for a pizza. I was like, these are winding me up. And then the thing is about the weather, you're kind of damned if you do, you're damned if you don't, because if it's really good weather, you can't sleep. Yeah. And then really bad weather, who wants bad weather? Exactly. Yeah. You know, it's nothing but muck. Like, I remember the last time I was there and I was staying in the tent, and I swear to God, boys, it was like staying in a fucking sauna. Yeah. And I just woke up and the sweat was all over me face and going, God, this place is hell on earth. Who would want to go <laughs> yeah. to this place? And then when it's cold, it's the coldest yeah, place on it's earth. the worst ever. Yeah. In the rain. Yeah. Strap Ali is just a ranch. It was like Calcutta going through them campsites. Honestly, I say Calcutta was better, like, do you yeah. know what I mean? It's the fella just... owns that must be making some money. Ah, I know the fella. Yeah. I know, not personally, I know who he is. I got the background. I ended up lagging my way in. I got a, uh, I got someone to drive me around in a bleeding a golf cart to get me ticket. And everyone yeah. thought, he must be VIP. I was like, no, I'm just gifted a gaff, you know what I mean? Yeah, and she are. brought me by the gaff that's down there. The gaff is fucking gigantic, proper to say. And yeah, man, it won't. He's actually from England. 
Oh, it's old, and, old and English money, gentry money. Like. Yeah, generational pass down, obviously. And he said he'll just drive around the whole place for uh, a few weeks now. Do you know when well they were setting up, he drives around himself. Isn't it funny the amount of that Anglo wealth that is still in the country? Like, yeah, uh, James Connolly, one of his things was he wanted a, a redistribution of wealth, a socialist um, principle, obviously. But I mean, I definitely agreed with it because you're talking about wealth that's been stolen for 800 years and whatever, and people are still have it this today. Like you think about the best of the best, all the leaders who actually died with their greatest mind or minds or at least the kind of bravest. And then when they die in the 16 Rising, the ones that kind of took over with the exception of a few were basically fucking idiots. And then by the time we get independence or so-called independence, you know, um, these people are still safe because what happened was the, these Anglos saw where the wind was blown and they sided with the IRA at times or donated money at times. And then you look around and there's still so much wealth within those communities like Strad Valley, mm. loads of places all around that have monumental wealth. A lot of them still not even living in the country. Yeah, It's it's mad, like, what they got away with and that it still have all that fucking wealth. And meanwhile, in Dublin, people are fucking starving, people are homeless and there's all that wealth that we should have took back. Like, what yeah. the fuck? Like, yeah, and that's from just a couple of, like, a couple of generations ago. Mm. Me and my missus went to the horse show in the RDS there a few weeks ago and uh, we parked the car Close boy, and we walk past all the big gaffs, and she goes, "You know that minted in that gaff because you have two Teslas in the driveway." And I goes, "No, do you know how you know that minted in that gaff? Because one of the Teslas was a 2016, and if you got a Tesla back then, you came from big money." And I'm walking by, and she's like, "I wonder what all these people do." And I was like, "No, I don't need to know what they do because I know they inherited that gaff. There's no way someone just walked away up a ladder and goes, I'm buying that gaff." No, it was passed down, yeah. and then she was telling stories about like. She walked in a bank and she'd get a CV and you'd see like, Jesus, this fella has the same second name as the CEO. You know, things like that. Yeah. And that, that kind of stuff is going on. Cronyism, you know what I mean? Cronyism is, is Ireland's favourite tool mm. and we are the best in the world at it. And you see it all across our institutions because, because we're a small country and we're island folk, our elite are small and they all went to the same school. We're Belvedere, Blackrock, you name it. And they ended up they end up going into similar professions or professions that serve each other, you know. All these different institutions, they're all serving each other. So our leader kind of very small and you have things wrapped up um, and we are the best at that. Even if you look at our politicians, like a lot of our politicians in rural Ireland would inherit their seat yeah. because their father was the TD. So then he, he he's the son. Yeah. He inherits yeah. that seat. Yeah. It's fucking mad. Just off the back of a second name. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. even if you look at the GAA, right, which and I'm not against the GAA in terms of like the sport of, of Gaelic and Hurling, whatever. But if you look at even the culture they have around that, obviously they're amateurs and they're the second biggest amateur organization in the world, the GAA behind the Olympics. They're making a lot of money. They don't pay the amateurs, right? But the nudge, nudge, wink, wink that we all know is that, oh, you get a job or you get something. Yeah. Even that, and, and I'm not saying that's wrong because in some ways you're going to amateurs, of course, they should benefit in some way. But that's open corruption. Yeah. yeah. It's mad that we accept that. They're illegal cartels. Yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, it is mad. Like, we're a funny little weird country, yeah. you know? And we serve each other and we just look out for each other that come from our class. And that's the thing. Like, we live in the time now we're talking about kind of woke politics and different sort of gender stuff and sexuality and race. And there are valid arguments for all those stuff. And, you know, just, if you if you hit one of those boxes, you could get discrimination and X, Y, and Z. But really, the biggest uh, privilege 
anywhere in the world is economic privilege. Mm. It's the biggest one. And we talked about this in the, li- in the live show. Yeah. It's the one they want to ignore because these people who are in the media and are writing about these issues are from upper class backgrounds. So they're never going to call out people from their own background. They're never going to call out their own economic privilege, which is the only thing that really exists that is tangible. Money is the only thing that's tangible. Right? Like, do you think someone is on the street in Dublin who's starving the night with a sleeping bag? Does it matter what color they are? No, no. Or sexuality? No, it doesn't. What matters is what's in their pocket. And that's the reality. That's why we have to get our head around. But we, we've gotten brainwashed, you know, and America, like Ireland's basically, we're basically colonized nowadays by, by American pop culture. Yeah. As with anybody in the English speaking West. Yeah. We're all just abbreviations of America now, essentially. Like, we're America. Culturally, yeah. we're American. Yeah. So we adopt their politics, we adopt their culture wars. When in actuality, our history is very different and there's a lot of different nuances to who we are as a people. Definitely. And we can't put that diaphragm onto Ireland, you know, that American yeah. thing. It's, it's weird. And that's something we've called out before. Like, you see like, an atrocity that happened in America and people will go protesting here and you get thousands on the street. But something similar would happen here. And uh, it's not a wisp, it, it does yeah. turn a blind eye to when you'd be like, well, bring the same energy. Like, you can actually impact those six or seven thousand people that are protesting can actually impact the effects of this, what's happening on your doorstep. Mm. Like, fair enough, you can acknowledge what happened across the world in America and call it out and say how bad it is and how it can never happen again. I'm in protesting for it either, but if you're going to do that, at least protest for be what's consistent happening on your doorstep. Definitely, because you can't impact that. You can't impact that. I think people just don't jump on the popular bandwagon. Yeah. Definitely, and that's where it is. What people love the part that the back. And it's all online now. And you have to remember, like these online, these social media apps have been rigged to give you dopamine hits and to release a, a serotonin through your receptors. So it's an addiction. And then what happens is you get, you get rewarded online for these images. So there's no real reward to going out to the, the water charges or, or for homeless people. No. But if you're doing Green Revolution stuff or if you're doing you know, racial stuff, there is a reward. And you get to say online that you're good. Yeah. You're a good person. And... Basically, you're a good person until someone else disagrees with you. Yeah, you see, this, you see this with people and you go, they're good, they're good, they're good, but someone disagrees and then all of a sudden their empathy turns into apathy and they, they're vile, vicious people and you're going, what is, what's wrong? Can we not just disagree on something? Yeah. We're literally at the point now where we can't disagree on something right. that, and it's mad. Well, that's cancel culture for you as well. Mm, but that's what I think is mad. Yeah. Like, uh, there were certain politicians and all coming out during lockdown doing protests for things that happened across the water. And then certain things would happen over here. People would want to protest. But then these politicians were against. If they get locked up and you can't visit your granny, you're going to kill her with Exactly. Like Leo Varagher, Leo Varagher fucking welcomed the, the George Floyd protest and, 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 <laughs> and he stood behind it. Like two days before this, telling us, you're yeah. going to kill your granny, essentially. Yeah, Don't that's go outside, can't wear masks. And then the people who protested at them were I heard those. far right. Yeah. You know, the people who protested oh, against the, COVID yeah. were far right yeah. Nazis. But the people who protested George Floyd were heroes. heroes. And there was like something like 8,000 8,000 miles down the country. I never forget that. COVID. Yeah. I'm going, what fucking, like, imagine if we were to utilize that power and people. Were as passionate with other issues, you know, our politicians will be really fucking worried. Yeah, I'll never forget that that happened. My auntie died that week, and I'll never forget we had to sit down and have a conversation about there was 20 people allowed in the church. And I remember thinking, like, we actually had to sit down and say, you can come in and you can't. Yeah, like, is this what the world has come to? You know what I mean? Breaking for you and your family. Oh, it was John, you know what? I always said it, like, being in that church was one of the worst experiences in my life, and then walking down back out the church with the coffin. And I remember thinking like this, like this is horrible. That's horrible, man. Because like how early it was, there's no one there. And then when I walked outside, because everyone had to wait outside, 
the reception we got everyone erupted and I was like this is deadly it was brilliant it was great to see two days later looking on Facebook there's 8,000 people protesting and they're being and encouraged like, by our biggest politicians and you're like what and then I remember disagreeing with that and I'm like this is this this shouldn't be allowed and people are like you're a racist for disagreeing with that and oh, I'm no, like of course we you can agree with the sentiment and disagree with the with the with, with the, the action consistency yeah yeah across the board who wasn't against the George Floyd murder exactly who wasn't who what sensible person yeah. would disagree with that that was a fucking straight up murder wrong in every way yeah. exactly but at the same time be fucking consistent are you telling us that everybody's dying of this thing and then eight or nine thousand people are protesting and you're lauded them like after you told us we have to lock get locked up and at the same time he's fucking taking his t-shirt off in the Phoenix Park drinking cans with his mates Leo Ragger like you know what I mean like come on Cons- have consistency. consistency and don't be a fucking hypocrite like mm-hmm. it's one of the worst things to be another thing I want to call out as well you know your man uh, Andrew Tate mm. yeah yeah like he got cancelled and he's deplatformed and all this stuff and I was thinking about him like I never agreed with Rant he talked about right and I think I first of all I think it's genuine and authentic I think it's an, an act he's putting on because if you look at all his clips he has like these kind of flashy shorts on the sunglasses and he talks in a certain way he talks like this no you don't disagree with me I talk like this I am right and I'm like that's a character you're portraying first of all right but I still think he should be held up as something as not a role model role model's not the right word but an example of don't be like this yeah as opposed to like he said something wrong get rid of it Mm. I totally agree man and actually the way you, you put that there is the way I put it he's playing a character he's 100% not, he's not real like no. he knows how to tap into this new youth who you know the ones who don't want to go outside the door this incel youth who are more and more living their life online and not interacting with women as much and, and are their friends you know like I remember years ago you know you'd walk around Darndale as a young fella and you'd be looking for gangs of young ones to chat up, you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, oh, what story you meet me and all this, you know what I mean? Yeah. And that's the way it was back yeah, then. It was. And it was fucking deadly. And a lot of times they tell you to fuck off. Yeah. You know what I mean? Other times you go, oh yeah, let's do it. And you're going, oh, deadly, yeah. And that's all you wanted. You're a young fella. This is all you want. Yeah. Nowadays, it's on WhatsApp. They're in a WhatsApp group together. You know what I mean? They don't interact the way they do. So Andrew Tate is at the coming along like it's like the perfect storm for someone like him. Yeah. yeah. He's a masculine man and he's playing up to that. And listen, he's he's looked into a lot of what Jordan Peterson done, right? And Jordan, I wouldn't put them in the same. They're very different. But the sentiment of what, who Jordan Peterson is connecting with. And he found an ultra masculine way of connecting with those people by playing a fucking character. And he is a legit world champion kickboxer. Yeah. Right? Now I disagree with 90% of what he says. Some of the stuff I go, yeah, no, that's common sense stuff and it's the little, it's the rule of a little bit of truth can get away with a lot you know what I mean yeah. you tap a little bit of truth in and then you can fill it with all this bullshit and you're getting these young malleable men but I, he, how the fuck is he he's the most cancelled human being now there has ever been he's been off all social media they've actually stopped him from using his own name as a domain on the yeah. internet not even on the platforms so the internet itself is going after him so you're going no you should, no one should decide what content I watch who I get influenced by that, we should never give that control to somebody. Because now we're living in a technocratic world in which the online world is so important for people making money now. You know, lads, this is your bread and butter now. Like, no one should ever choose uh, what people listening to Talking Bollocks or not for whatever view that one of you may or may not hold. We should never be giving that much of power away to any corporation or institution. Let people decide themselves. And it goes back to the old thing. If there's bad ideas you know, beat them with good ideas. Yeah. It's as simple as that. You learn from that. You learn from that. Yeah. But you know what? You make him a martyr 
right? He becomes even bigger now. He's got yeah. Rumble and Rumble's fucking um, um, Rumble's uh, platform was at the uh, Dublin the last week since he went on Rumble. So it's like when you when you make a martyr out of somebody, then people go, why why were you silencing that person? And you give them even more power. It's like exactly, man yeah. Tommy Robinson. Yeah, you remember Tommy Robinson, yeah. the Islamophobe who had fucking Irish immigrant parents, so a hypocrite. But Tommy Robinson then got bands off everything, and now he's a fucking cult hero in England. Yeah. Like people love him. He's almost like a saint to the English working class people. And it's because he was censored and pulled off all platforms. So that, you know what I mean? It's it's not serving their own purpose, yeah. which is silencing this person. They're not going to end up. Alex Jones, he's when he got uh, pulled off all the platforms, his app became the biggest app in the world. It crashed. It was that big. They couldn't even handle it. The server couldn't handle it. Do you know what I mean? So it's same with Trump. Trump starting up his yeah. own social media thing. And there you go. Like you the, know what I mean? The numbers like, are going through. Exactly. So it's actually counterproductive to what they're trying to do. Yeah. They're trying to silence someone. It's actually counterproductive. So I like, for example, you said like people should have the choice to listen to talk about. And let's say we said something controversial. I know I'm going to come up with a crude example, but like Terence says, toast shouldn't be buttered. Yeah. And that's how it is. You should never put your toast. I wouldn't like someone to say, do you know what? Get rid of talk about completely. I'd rather someone say, oh, that's what they believe in. I actually don't want to listen to that anymore. It's grand. It's yeah. there. I'll scroll past it on sure. Spotify instead. Give them the choice. Yeah. But even when you saying, you know, you might say something controversial. But every now and again, you're going to say something controversial to somebody else because it's all subjective. And there's no human being out there. Like, if a human being tells me that I'm left wing, right, or I'm right wing, and here's all the left wing positions mm. and I believe in all those positions or here's all the right wing positions and I believe in all those positions I know that I'm talking to an ideologue someone who's obsessed ideologically possessed with actual no core beliefs because there's not a human being uh, alive on planet earth that doesn't have positions all over the gaff yeah, yeah. conservative liberal all over like I grew up as a traveller, right? So I obviously have conservative yep. views because it's in the name conserving because mm. I want to conserve my culture and traditions. Yep. However, I broke the mold in many ways and hold liberal left-wing views and I'm all over the place. And that makes me, John Connors, me. Yeah. I've positions everywhere, but we live in such an extreme world that a person on the left, a person on the right, see your position here or your position here and then they brand you. Yeah. You know, like for instance, I was I was pro-gay marriage and I was one of the only voices of anybody who's sort of well-known in my community that backed that because we come from a very conservative culture, right, who would have been against homosexuality for so long and still are, I would say, but it's changed a lot since the rise of social media, I think, and people like Huey Martin and, mm. and other people, and Martin Beans Ward, who came out, they've helped it a lot. But I was one of the only people who, were, who was backing that. And I was calling out and traveler activists, and they wouldn't, they wouldn't say it publicly. And I got a lot of stick from that, right? And that's where I broke my conservative tradition. But then, on the other way, um, I went and I was pro-life. And, and that's, that's it's, it's more deeper than even culture for me. That's a really deep human thing for me. And I suppose what my belief is the most precious thing uh, in life is human life. Yeah. Okay, that's my belief. But if someone disagrees, that's fine. Yeah. Now, I saw a video, and this was like the, maybe the first time it got cancelled. <laughs> I saw a video and there was all these Irish celebrities and they were all saying that they were pro-choice, right? Every one of them. And there was no Irish so-called celebrities that came out as pro-life. None, none. And I had loads of people hit me up because they knew, they knew by my silence, they knew I was pro-life, right? Now, I said, what am I going to do here? Like, I feel like I'm betraying my beliefs so I don't put something out there because everybody else is allowed to put what they want out. So let me just put something out, right? And I'll just say, here's my position, now leave me alone. Mm. All I did was put up a picture of pro-life, right? Oh my God, Pandora's box opened up. 
I had something like 5,000 comments in 24 hours on my Facebook page, personal Facebook page, right? 90% of the people condemning me and calling me a misogynist, right? Now, it's very funny to be, me ever be able to call me a misogynist, a person who was raised by a single mother. Yeah. yeah. Uh, in a really tough culture, in a matriarchal culture, right? Uh, having to fight for us, literally fight for us. My mother is my fucking hero. I love her more than any person in this, in this world. But then I ask the question, if I'm a misogynist, what about my mother, who's also pro-life? Is she a misogynist? Yeah. With the, or the women who's pro-life? Just ask these questions. So then they start coming after me so hard. Some of them were doing death threats. People who were on the repeal campaign were saying, um, um, I hope that it goes through so at least travel children can get aborted, right? These people who were, had verified people, people who had their, their repeal tops on them and all, these people who were seen as tolerant, as empathetic, as left-wing and as liberal, yeah, until you disagree with until them. Until you disagree with them. And you saw the spite and the evil in these people coming through. So what happens to me is my whole, I suppose, persona growing up or teenage years were shaped by being bullied. So I was bullied a lot. And I joined boxing as a result of it. And it was all to, to show I, I have enough. I'm, I'm, I'm able. I'm, I, you know, and also my father told me never, never back down from a fight and always ask questions. They were the things. So I always double down on things. And if someone comes at me, I'm coming at them and that's it. And I'm willing to die. It's just it is because I turn into that psychotic self. I go into that cycle. I'm willing to die for someone. So I doubled down then. And I went, oh, okay, you're all coming after me. There's death threats or whatever. So what did I do? Something like very idiotic and very extreme, which shows you what happens in these culture wars. When you get pulled in, you get pulled into the extreme. I went and got a T-shirt printed out saying, say no to baby genocide. Now... That wasn't a subtle move. That wasn't the right move. And it was actually very insensitive because I, even though I'm a pro-life, I do feel for women who go through that. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. But what happens is I got dragged in and felt yeah. like I was getting bullied. Fighting, so fight, Fighting. Yeah. And I went, what the fuck did I do? Like, yeah. You know what I mean? Like, that was just idiotic. But the but fact you, that you sit there and hold your hands up is actually admirable. Yeah. Where most people then, like, because... I think it's easy to fight fire with fire for and sure. not think things through. But yeah. then to stand back and go... Actually, I fucked up. Yeah. That was the wrong move. Like, yeah. yeah, without a doubt. And then what happened then was I had 15 speaking gigs arranged all around the country. They were all cancelled within 24 hours. And my biggest role to date was it was a big role over in Britain that I was playing in this film um, was was gone. And then I got a part in a TV show in England as well. This was just after Carbo Gangsters and I was on a kind of rise and I won the IFTA. So I was getting looked at from the UK perspective. So I was about to soar there and that ended it all overnight gone and I was probably one of the first people in Ireland that was cancelled and it was because of that and they got, I got dragged in I got dragged into that extreme side of myself as well we all have to watch that you yeah. know and it takes fucking sometimes you have to fall down and sometimes you have to fall down twice or three times to, to recognise what's going on inside you as well and what buttons are getting pressed inside you and I was always going fuck everybody I'll, t I'll tell them what to chip on the shoulder you know when mm. you come from our background I'll tell everybody what I think and they can fuck off whatever not on what I'm hanging if I'm going to serve myself the best be smart about what you're saying be smart about what you're actually putting out there who you're talking to it's a game it's all a game yeah. career is a game life is a game and you have to play it smart like fucking chess lads yeah. where you get destroyed they take all your kings and you're fucked and yeah. it's as simple as that. Yeah. And that's the thing about social media and politics you were saying about, like, if everybody is, like, all the right-wing checkboxes. Like, we do talk about politics the other time yourself and turn it privately and we do, like, you just be asking about, like, remember you were saying, like, how do you know someone's right-wing? And I was like, you can nearly form someone's opinion 
about a certain topic if someone's right wing I know what their opinion's going to be sure. about this topic yeah. the oppositions you know like that yeah. and it shouldn't be like that no. you should be able to say like oh yeah like I am pro gay marriage but I'm also pro life whereas For sure. y- you should be anti one and pro the other you know yeah. and it's like why, why can't we be like yeah. this is what I think about this and this is what I think about that and people are like no 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 you have to be all of the yeah. all of that like yeah. and you're like this it doesn't make sense it, well it's this absolutism you know what I mean and and it's 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 basically a fucking a symptom of our collective mental health globally now because we live in a global world and if you look at the left wing versus the right wing the left wing are clearly neurotics right they're very high neuroticism the negative emotion and they're all screaming and you see them you know you see the extreme versus with the purple hair and the yeah <laughs> I always say, John. All men are rapists and all this. Never stuff. trust anyone who has yeah. purple hair. Yeah, no. never trust anyone who has purple hair. Come here. I saw this one fucking poster, political poster of this. God forgive me. Uh, this this woman and she was extremely overweight, right? And I know I battle weight on my life, and I just know if you're morbidly obese, you can't be healthy physically or mentally. You can't. I know. I was morbidly obese only six months ago. Now I'm just regular fucking obese. Right? <laughs> but anyway, she had purple fucking hair. Right, and she was screaming out a fucking thing, and she was a vegan advocate and all this, and I'm going, oh my god! And you're seeing it, you're seeing she's just a physical manifestation of the symptoms that's wrong with our political society. So on the left, you have the neurotics, and they're all screaming and and all men are this and all that, and, 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 and straight white male and blah blah blah. And then you have the far right who are all fucking raising all all soy boys and they're this that and the other, and they're the psychotic. So it's it's basically a battle of the neurotic versus the psychotic. Yeah. And they make up about ten percent of the world on each side, but there's a whole eighty percent in the middle who are just being quiet. Yeah. And they're gonna they're getting dragged in here and there, you know. And then we have Twitter, which I'm off. I had to get off uh, two years ago. I finally got off Twitter because that is sick because that's designed to be controversial because you've only used 160 characters or 220. Yeah. So you have to say something that is controversial in order for it to get and it feeds into your own your own ego. You know what I mean? So I got off that. But that's designed for that as well. And then you get online and then the extremes dominate that. And then if you look at what Twitter does, Twitter basically dictates global policy. You know, or any policy in any country where it's prevalent. You know, the, that the all the media are on it, the, the Irish media are on it, the Irish politicians are on it. It's very important, Twitter. So you just have these extremes that are coming in and it's easy just to get dragged in. And do you think it's just online that people are like that? Is there anybody that's actually in real life that are actually like that on both sides? Well, uh, six, seven years ago, I would have said it's only online. Yeah. And six, seven years I went, this is only an online problem or, you know, the stuff of the extremists, the kind of far left extremists, the kind of, you know, the stereotype purple haired people. You'd imagine they were only in university six, seven years ago. But now, you know, it's six, seven years later and they're in positions of power and it's actually changing. They are changing the culture. Like I remember going to Cork University, myself, Frankie Gaffney, oh, fuck, he's going to kill me for, he's going to kill me for not remembering his name. But uh, another lad, who was involved in the the Joan Burton scandal, and he was the fella that um, he was the fella that got arrested. He was only fifteen, mm. right? a working class kid. And the three of us went to university, the, the university to talk about class issues or whatever. And we got protested for being straight white male. This is six seven years ago for being straight white male. So like this young fella is a working class fella in Fintala. Uh, Frankie Gaffney's from the inner city, working class fella, and I'm a traveller from Darndale, and we're getting protested. Mm-hmm. Because we're not in- inclusive enough. Are you fucking for real? Mm. I remember them standing up to us and I'm going, what are you protesting? What are you doing? And they, and they didn't know what they were protesting for. These kind of upper class kids who were just fucking brainwashed by American politics. And they, one of them asked me a censorship question about your man Milo Yielanopoulos. Yeah. Dude. And they were like, do you think he should be allowed to talk? And I said, of course, let him talk. If you're confident that your idea is better, let him talk. And he threw a hissy fit and started protesting us in the middle of the talk. And I went, 
oh shit this is this is getting serious I said I hope this hope they all just cop on to themselves and you know this fucking brain damage lessons as they, as they leave this fucking college but it, it doesn't lads and now it is getting worse and you're seeing it everywhere now where people when I people in my family are going you can't say nothing like what well, people are constantly picking people up you can't say this you can't say that and eventually they're going to be fucking censoring their fucking thoughts like where are you going to go with this and yeah. for anybody like myself who I believe in I believe in looking after your mental health and I believe the key tool to looking after your mental health is expressing yourself. And not just through art, which I think is a great way, um, but expressing yourself like we are here now. Yeah. So anybody who wants to repress my my speech or what I want to say or me express myself, I'm against that. I think that's wrong. And I think the symptom will, will get worse and worse and worse if we're not allowed to actually talk. Let's talk about what we disagree with. That's the only way forward. Mm-hmm. You know? well, I think it was a bit of a, a power trip kind of thing as well. It's like, oh, this worked. So now we're gonna decide who can who can say something, who can't, and it's a bit like similar to the lockdown things. Like the government put these things in play, but the people fucking dictated. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like I had more people give out to me personally than any guard ever did for like breaking laws or whatever. And it's like that. I think online as well. It's like no, we will say what you kind of can't say. Not Twitter itself. Like Twitter will leave your post up, but people will comment underneath and call you all the names in the world. Yeah. You know what I mean? Whereas Twitter, I think, like, oh no, that's actually all right, what you said. Yeah. So you're not against our policy. It's just like the court of public opinions will yeah. dictate who is and who isn't cancelled. I love being Irish, man. I think genuinely, and I don't want to sound like an American by bragging here, but I think we're the greatest people in the world. Mm. I, do, I do, because I think we're the most hospitable and most welcoming people. We have a thing in this country that is that that we don't have in any other country. When you travel across the world, you realise and you meet other people, although it's beautiful, and you can have life-changing experiences, you realise nowhere else in the world do you have the crack. The crack is beautiful, and the crack is many things. The crack is storytelling, the crack is singing, the crack is warmth, the crack is you can make a friend like that in Ireland. The crack is many yeah. things. So I love being Irish, right? And despite the fact that I got a lot of discrimination by being a traveller in this country, I still love it. I would never change it. But our flaws... We're very obedient people, yeah, the Irish. Definitely. The fighting Irish have become the sedated Irish. So, yeah. And we saw that lockdown. That was like really like to a nuclear point going, wow, wow, how obedient we were yeah. compared to other countries, lads. Like other countries would not take shit. We took so much shit. It's like if you look at the EU and whatever your position is in that, but you look at the EU, basically we're grateful because they give us a few signs and roads and the, the dictator. But like imagine, do you know that an American state in the USA... Right, has more state over their state policy than Ireland has as a country within the EU. Hmm. And yet we, we have a favourability rating of like 97% with the EU. We're EU loyalists, right? Because the Irish are last to the fucking races all the time. We're so fucking obedient and we just want to get along, we want to get along. We have to we have to dissect that, lads, as a hmm. country because it's a big fucking problem, you know? But definitely, not even in terms of the COVID and stuff like that, but in terms of like what's going on with the government, every week there's a new scandal with the government and someone's actually getting caught with their trousers down after like literally... People forgetting to register 11 properties. Oh, yeah, I forgot I had them under my name. I just didn't register them. And we're just like, ah, grand. So to call out Robert Troy, did you see the people in his constituency? They interviewed him. So what you think of that? People are like, well, he didn't murder anybody, so he's grand. And you're like, no. He just had 11 properties there that he didn't declare. So remember when, remember when Rad got come out and was like, welfare, frauds, cheat us all. And you're like, right, so you want me to rat on anybody that's like doing a nixer, or, for example. Yeah. But this fella... Is not paying property tax and he's pushing. Another fella come out, I think he's a, a senator. He's on 60 grand a year and his missus earns six figures a year and he's collecting HAP. Mm. 
And you're like, uh, wait, hang on, what's the difference here? But like, you know what, we just get on with it. We're like, ah, fuck I have to laugh at that Viraga thing, basically criminalising people for being on welfare. Meanwhile, they were given literally, I think at that time, I haven't checked the latest, but they were given 160 million of our taxpayers' money into private schools. Yeah. I thought the whole point of a private school is not state-funded. Um, and then you look at the level of corruption, you look at the, at the amount of um, ministers, government ministers, elected TDs that are actual landlords, and these they dictate policy on housing. Like that is the most crazy, crazy corruption that I've... The like problem I, there, I can't John, believe it. they can't relate to working class no. or travel like communities. No. They can't, so they don't know what it's like to struggle. They've never struggled. Sure, what the Viragra say? Why don't you just do what I did? I borrowed Get a loan. loan. Man and dad. Yeah. Oh yeah, every mother and father just has 40 to 50 grand just yeah. lying around there. The yeah. Sure, that was a good idea. I'll ask my mother who's been on welfare all her life for 50 grand. Yeah. Nah, nice one. That's what I'll do, Viragra. Thank mm. you. Thank you. What a genius. And they're like... That it's so out of touch that, like, even that, like, if you were to say that to them, oh, my mother was on welfare all her life, she's a single mother, which, well, why is she on welfare yeah. all her They can't relate to struggle, they can't yeah. relate to poverty, they don't know what it's like to go hungry, yeah. they don't know what it's like to not be able to pay their bills, or sleep in a flat, a one-bedroom flat with five, six, seven years there, cold, nothing to eat, you're eating bread, mouldy bread. So you don't they don't know what discomfort is. They don't know what that is, yeah. so... To them, pumping this money into these private schools, ah, sure, look, we'll look after this. They forget that there's people homeless out here, there's people going hungry, and it's getting worse by the minute. Like, this winter is going to be a real struggle. Like, the next few months for, for working-class people and people in areas of poverty, like, are really, really going to struggle. Like. Especially with all the energy bills and everything. Mm. It's no no joke, lads. Talking about blackouts as well. Yeah, it's going to, well, Britain are already talking about they're going to do two or three days of blackouts soon just to conserve fucking energy. It'll tell you, and we're behind them boys, like, it's all coming, like, the inflation is going through the roof, like, everything is, the fuel is, like, it's, wow, it's mad times we're in, like. It is. It is very scary times, and it's not even that they can't relate, it's that they actually don't want to even put in yeah, a policy that would benefit mind. people. Yeah, you know what I mean? The narrow mind, the closed mind, instead of actually just even hearing opinions of people from these places, they just don't want to do that. They don't want to look into it. They just want to go, oh, we think this is the right thing to do. We're doing this. Yeah. But what about everybody well, else? D- d- what I said this before, I did, I did a show where I think it was uh, the Vincent Brown, no, it was the Ivan, Ivan, Ivan and uh, Ivan Cooper, and or no, Ivan Yates and your man Matt Cooper, that show. And I was on it, me on it, with fucking three politicians, Joan Burton and then Fianna Fáil and Fianna Gael, which is two cheeks of the same arse. And basically, we were all talking before, and we were all talking, and I was being civil to them. And uh, and I said, when we go out there, I'm going after you. It's just straight up, like, you're, you're going to be held accountable. Because I don't, I don't care, and I'm not going to do, you know, political discourse. I'm going to just call you out, because what I believe they actually are, lads, is psychopaths. Now, if you look at... Um, the literature, the psychological literature, and you look at the different careers that psychopaths or sociopaths gravitate towards. Yeah. The, uh, politics is very at the very yeah. top. Politics and banking, because it requires a, a level of apathy so that you can just go, I'll just sign that piece of paper and I don't care. I don't yeah. care who gets a victim. No consequences. There's no anything. consequence. And I said it to the face, I said, you're psychopaths. I believe you should do a psychopath test because I think to be a politician, you should be very high in empathy and mm. openness as opposed mm. to be the opposite. And again, if you look at what they did with the, the welfare cheats, Look what happened! Look what happened to the bankers in this country. Nothing. The ones who ruined lives. The ones who caused thousands of people to kill themselves. The ones who who caused thousands more to be homeless by a little stroke of a pen, 
but yet we're we need to worry about the people in the tracksuits and the people who are doing welfare fraud. They're the mm. real villains. Like, and then we believe this. And then what happens is you get people who are at the bottom um, of the economic ladder, who are working really hard, who are doing a fucking warehouse job and are hating the fucking job. And then they get somebody to hate on. And it's the divide and conquer. It's a it's a British colonial tactic. They've been using it since the beginning of fucking time, you know. Yeah. They, 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 they pit us against each other. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Like signing in a policy to give landlords a tax break when something like what, like 40% of TDs in the doll at the moment that like landlords. Yeah. yeah. You know, like, so you're putting in a policy that benefits you, but they put a spin on it. It's like, oh, let's keep them in the market because we have a housing crisis. Yeah. Well, your politician being a landlord is like, uh, is basically like, your surgeon being your funeral director. Yeah, yeah, that's what it is. Yeah, yeah. I'm gonna, I'm gonna fuck up the surgery so I can also do your funeral. Yeah, it's the same fucking thing. Like it's unbelievable, and we don't see this in any other country in the world. Only Ireland, because we have this little small elite, and we're still only a young country, lads. Yeah, you know what I mean. Like, and we've never been truly united. No, you know, and even the thirty-two county thing that was made up by the British. Like, we had ninety-six kingdoms, all different tours, and if you were to go to another tour, another clan, you had to ask for permission, and it was mostly kind of herd and cattle people that would move around. You know, Brian Brew was the last person to unite Ireland on the Battle of Clontarf at eighty-seven years of age, and then right afterwards he was decapitated. You know what I mean? So we've always had that clannish mentality and we kind of stick to our own clan, that tribalism. And you see that replicated in modern day GAA and how we do that. Yeah. The only good thing I would say about the GAAs as opposed to soccer, soccer in the, in the, in England and that, is we don't have that hooliganism. We no. have the crack, you know? You can tip yeah. aside someone from a different county in Crow Park. And yeah. that's the Irish thing. Yeah. That's the crack. That's what I was talking about, you know? Yeah. Right, boys. <laughs> I don't know how far into this episode, yeah, but usually we start with zingers. Yeah. We had to go on a few tangents there, John. Yeah. <laughs> Just a couple of tangents, yeah. that's I all. I think we're about five minutes in. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, zingers from last week, John, yeah? Fuck me, man. I think that's the longest we've ever went without doing zingers, is it? I cross my mind there that we probably get away with never doing them in the, oh, not sorry, not doing them in this episode, but now you have the results, you may as well. Oh, we may as well just jump into them. Yeah. We, we may as well do them. So, uh, John, I actually, I'm going to get a good answer out of you for this, I think. So, would you rather your best friend, yeah, ride your missus on you, or them, get 20, <laughs> or them get 25 years in prison? My best friend ride me missus, or he, he has to go to prison for 25 years. Mm. Well, twist ride it. Ride me missus. Yeah. Yeah, it's my best friend. Like, well, twist him to, not he's, him, if he's my best friend, he ain't going to prison for 25 years. But if he rides your missus, is he it's still going to be gonna... awkward at all the parties? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> We're probably not going to be friends, but I'm going to save his life. You know what I mean? Yeah, would you? Yeah, yeah, yeah I think so, yeah. Because uh, people, people were asking, I was like, right, put it this way. Imagine your mate's in court and the judge says, sentence you to loop in prison. <laughs> but if you ride his missus, if he lets you ride his missus, you don't have to go. I think that's different because you're looking at it from a different point of view. Is that, that, that's what crossed my that's mind like, if that was me I'd be like obviously take a spin off her. girl up on the saddle yeah. I'll patch you on the hole while yeah. you're doing it you know but I think it's like one of them where it's behind you back in your phone and you're like oh the dirty dog oh you mean so oh no but so that's, it's not a predicament of like the judge will give it to oh, you mean, oh that's the way did, I looked at it he did it slightly Is it? Are you, you mean if, he, if that's the case I think we'd all say right are, are you saying he did it slightly to, to get off and that was the deal. No, 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 no. This is some mad question. So, <laughs> yeah. So let's this just, is some Machiavellian shit. Yeah. <laughs> let's I didn't just break it that back way. down. Let's just break it back down, right? It's either or. It's not one or like, it's not like the judge is giving you two options. It's like, he's going to ride your board on you. 
but like you'll find out about it. So you're saying, would you rather the heartbreak of your mate going yeah. to prison, or would you rather the heartbreak of finding out your old job board? Yeah, 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 yeah. I oh, sorry. Yeah. yeah. Well, if he was bad enough to ride me, Mrs. Fuck him and yeah. go for life if he wants. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I yeah, agree so, with John. Yeah, same. Yeah, yeah. I think that's. What so I don't know where we're at right now. Yeah. Kind of. No, because last week when it was put to me, it was just like. Your best mate's going to go and get locked up, get locked in prison, unless he rides your board. And you're I like, oh, that's a bad one. let them ride the board out there, would you? I don't know, it'd be a good one though, wouldn't it? Would you? You'll let me do it 25 years. Yeah. I'll blow me muck in a minute. Years. I'll drop up to you, I'll drop up to you for the park run yeah. every Saturday in the joy. Yeah. <laughs> Throw something over the wall. Yeah, yeah. definitely drop to you. <laughs> Anyways, really, so 66% of people have had that friend go out to prison. Oh my God, yes. Here we three people. Right? Yeah, and 35% would sleep at her. John, what, what do you call your, your, say your ma's ma, your dad's ma, what do you call them? Oh, uh, well, I call me granny Chrissy, Chrissy. Oh, so uh, but granny. then my other, my other, my other, my other grandmother, I called her Nana. Oh, so that's similar yeah. to you as well. A lot of people seem to be in that boat as well. A lot yeah. of people text her the same, that, didn't they? So the, the thing of that is that they call her Nanny or Nana. And I was like, I call me dad's man, nana, I mean man's man, nanny. Yeah, there's different, it's different families, different dynamics, I think. Yeah. And even some people call their, their grandmother after the name, which I wouldn't with my grandmother Chrissy, because she's a very strong, uh, domineering personality. So yeah, I, I know what you mean, yeah, yeah. So it's kind of different. Yeah. You know? And then yeah. my mother, I call mommy. Like you yeah, laugh, yeah. I said, mommy. You, say, you told us this before, and you look at all all travellers do that, don't they? Mommy, yeah, absolutely, yeah. Mm-hmm. Now, if you refer to her, you'd say if you were referring to her, you'd say me mother. Yeah. But if you're talking to her, it's mommy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Anyway, so the thing I was, they call them nanny or nana. Seventy-five percent said nanny, and twenty-five percent said nana. Yeah. What would you What you say, nana? Like, me, me dad's ma is me nana. But I said this before last week. Everyone on me dad's side call her nana. Like yeah. every one of the grandchildren, yeah. even people who are not related to her. Yeah. Like I have cousins on my ma's side who because like they, we'd be close and like family uh, get togethers or whatever, they refer to her as Nana and they're not related at all and they still call her Nana. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. It's a weird one. It's just she's just me nana. Yeah. To everybody. And then yeah. last week I tried to explain it as well. So she's a great, great grandmother. No way. Yeah. So, so our great-grandchild great. has really, a child. We really, really struggled last week with that. Yeah, I was trying to put it together. My, my great... I, I knew two of my great-grandmothers. Um, Mago McCarthy and then my other one, Nan McCann. Now, Nan McCann... They're great names, yeah, by the way. Nan McCann, she was... She, she, in 1952, her husband, my great-grandfather, old John Donahue, was kicked to death by the B-Specials, right, in a prison cell. Just took out of the Republican Party and kicked to death. He was on a bike. And the next day... They went over, uh, the police went over to be specials and ran all my family off the campsite so they wouldn't press charges. So what happened was Nan went back on the road with all her children, loads of children, 12 children. And she had a big steal and borrow just to keep them alive, right? And she ended up doing nine months in prison for, for robbing copper or spuds or boat uh, just to keep the children alive again and put the family back over to the other family to look after and all this. But she raised the children to be staunch Republicans, obviously, with the father being kicked to death by the B-Specials, the, essentially the, the, the British. So what happened was, Dee grew up to be staunch, and even in 1981, I remember, she was, she was staunch. 1981, I was told about this, and when Bobby Sands died, she burned her wagon to the ground with all her belongings in honour of Bobby Sands and walked around the site for a week with it in a shawl. That's the kind of woman she was, right? Now, I remember she was really like, she'd say things like, 
Like she was, you know, like she wouldn't be very conservative. Like she'd say to me, mother and other aunts who maybe their husbands were dead or, or divorced, she'd be saying, why don't you go and get yourself a, a strong Sheriff Street man, a big baldy fella, they're hardy men. You know, these kind of things that a, a travel woman of that generation wouldn't say. Yeah. Her daughter, my grandmother Chrissy, would be saying, mom, will you shut up saying them things? Yeah. And she ah, fuck off. She was that kind of woman, you know. And she, end, she ended up having to stop her drinking. She loved drinking Guinness, right? And she was dying at uh, 80 years of age. She was dying and and she was in the hospital. And people who work in hospitals hate travellers. And I wouldn't blame them because if a traveller goes to the hospital and it's uh, relatively anyway, if it's anyway, but if it's anyway serious, every traveller that you've ever met goes to that hospital. Yeah. It's a respect <laughs> thing. Every person, fellas they barely know, like just met him once. You know what I mean? A friend of a friend, a cousin of a cousin. So everybody descended into the hospital. Right, and I was at the very front because I was a great-grandchild and then there was grandchildren and so on and so forth. And yeah, please fill me up, bro. So she was sitting down, she was lying down and she was, her eyes were closed and she was dying and she got her last rites by the priest. And the doctor said, look, that's it, like, she's, she's gone, you know. And my uncle, whose name is Brother, nickname, ironically, Brother, because travelers all have the same name, Michael, Martin, Patrick, John, whatever. So we have to <laughs> give nicknames in order to distinguish, it's like the mafia, right? So he says, doctor... He says, do you mind if I go and get her a few cans of Guinness? Because she loved her Guinness. And she gave them up, you know. And he went, look, Michael, if she's still alive by the time you get back, sure. I just gave him a D4 accent. I don't know why. It must yeah. have been, it could have been from back. Typecasting doctors, yeah. Oh, no, he probably comes back. So anyway, he goes and I go with him and we get the Guinness. And we come back and he's like a fucking hero with these Guinness, right? And he gets pint glass and he opens up the Guinness. And he says, Granny, can I... Can I give you a Guinness, you know? And his, his mother, uh, my, gran- my great-granny's uh, daughter, Chrissy, saying, stop, let her die, let her go, let her go, you know? It's, and it's going, let me try, will you just let me try? She loved Guinness, the woman loved Guinness, will you let me try? And he's trying to get through to her, right? So he does a pour, two-point pour course, and gives it over to her lips, and she takes a little sup of the Guinness, and takes another little sup of the Guinness, takes another sup, another sup, and she eventually drinks a full pint of Guinness in about a half an hour. And what happens is when people die, they get a last lease of life. I swear to God, it's the truth. Because I've seen it with my grandfather, the last lease, you think they're back to life, yeah? So he goes, second one, two point pour, brings it back, Granny's one, another one. And she shakes her head. <laughs> and he goes, okay, I'll try. And people look, hmm, interesting, last lease of life and all that stuff. Another Guinness, 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 second point. Granny, do you want a third Guinness? <laughs> two point pour. Yeah, 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 son. Oh, okay. Third Guinness slaughters it. <laughs> Granny, do you want a fourth Guinness? <laughs> I do, son. I'd love another Guinness. People are going, what the fuck? Like, people are going, this is mad. And she goes, has anybody any old rebel tapes in their car? Because she loved rebel music. So every man in that room, with the exception of my uncle, Nick Dan, brother, ran to the cars in the car packs to get their first wolf tone fucking CD you know, Airog and all that shit yeah. they all came back someone fucking robbed the stereo from one of the nurses you know or borrowed it <laughs> and uh, put on the, Re- the, the Rebel CD she drank another Guinness or fifth Guinness and she said lift me up and he lifted her up right and then he went Granny do you want another Guinness the last can like yes yeah, son and she got up and she started dancing and she lived six more year fuck off oh. yeah that's the power of the mind man just that's just, fucking that's deadly. Fact, I was there. Six, yeah. Famous story within my family. I have it in my film, uh, Minkair's Wedding, which I'm going to make next year. That means travellers talking. Uh, I wrote it in, in the script. That's, she lived six more years till 86 years of age, which in settled years is about 200. 
<laughs> it's not a great advertisement for Guinness. That's fucking mad. Guinness, if you're listening out there, fund the fucking film. That's fucking it's a, madness. It's a, that's, that's a fact. That's a fact, man, yeah. That is but a great just, story. Isn't that, like, that's a great example of the the absolute power of the human mind and what it can actually overcome. Oh, you heard so many stories deprived. like that. She was deprived of her Guinness that yeah. she loved for years, you know, and something switched. It's not about the Guinness, but it is about the Guinness Guinness, but it's not about, <laughs> the, it's not about the Guinness. It's that thing that was the, that she the was the purpose. Like, the purpose, yeah, yeah, exactly. Going, oh, get me a Guinness again. And that was it. She lived six more years. Because I heard of someone who only died recently and they used to like go to the shop every day and like get the same thing and come back. But they fell ill or something like that and the doctor says, you you're a bit old and you have to stop doing that and they did and they were dead in two months yeah. Yeah. and someone says they used to do that daily routine and that was gone and you hear so many cases of elderly people as well they'd be told to stop smoking or drinking or something like that and then they stop and then they deteriorate Absolutely, yeah. Yeah. which is yeah. very strange because you're like it, that stuff is yeah, scientifically yeah. killing you yeah because yeah. we haven't got a grasp on the psychology of it all we don't fully yet understand or the neuroscience with all that stuff mm. that happened so much during lockdown you know but old lads in rural Ireland yeah, yeah, you know yeah. they, they didn't get the to pub, go to the pub anymore yeah. every day and then that's it they all die they're all dying off like because they're compl- they're lonely lads because mm. loneliness will fucking kill you oh, big time. loneliness is one of the biggest killers out there you know yeah. you could you could be fucking surrounded by people and feel like the loneliest person in the fucking room too you know yeah, what I mean? like definitely. people are actually not connecting with you and that you see that happening with the elder people at major. Like we ignore elder people so much to the point where it's like they're like like we don't touch them. You know, people are afraid to go and chat them. People are afraid to talk to them. They're afraid they're getting stuck in a chat, never realizing that these people might have lived eighty years, eighty five years, and they've this wealth of experience that we can learn from that we're never going to get from any fucking book. Yeah, you know, like I chat chat chatted all my grandparents like extensively. I record them for hours. Or every single day I would there to be over with one of my grandparents. And how much I learned about life and, and the lessons of life and where they came from was unbelievable. And like that story, that comes from my great-grandmother. Do you know what I mean? I would know these things. I can go back to 1798 when my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather, Martin Ward, fought in the 1798 rebellion and built pikes. Now his son, Patrick Ward, went on the road during the so-called famine, which was a forced starvation. And he went into a lord's castle, a so-called lord, one day. And he was looking for a bit of food in the back of the castle. And this young Catholic girl comes out who would have been just on food or rations to, to stay there. And if you had that job, you, that meant you were living, you were alive, you didn't need money, you know. And she gave him out some of the rations, right? And he took the rations and he ate them. But later that night, the Lord found out and he sacked her, which during the family would mean a death sentence, right? So she goes down the road and she's going down this whole country road and she sees a fire and she sees Patrick Ward, my ancestor. And she goes over to him and he was eating a rabbit. And he says, come here, what happened? And he, she explains that she was sacked. For feeding him. Like. For feeding him. And he says, look, if a rabbit her, let's eat the fucking rabbit. And he had the rabbit together and he got married. And she's my ancestor. Isn't that mad? It's so, mad how you know that. It's deadly tracing that it's back. It's oral history, you know what I mean? Yeah. But it's like, this, all this stuff will get lost if we don't, don't hold on to it, you know? Like, the inner city has, like, an unbelievable history, you know? Yeah. And, like, what the inner city, like, the flats and all that, it reminds me of traveller sites because it's like the old Irish two at clan structure because everybody knows everybody and they're either related, second, third, cousins or family yeah, yeah. or they might as well be. Maybe and we always give each other a bit of sugar and hay and milk and it's deadly. Like I was up in the Leo Fitzgerald's flats there during COVID and I went down with my friend uh, Stephen Clinch 
And uh, Stephen's at the passing away. God helped me a few months ago. Lovely fella. Uh, Stephen was, uh, he was in um, Carver Gangsters and Love Hate. You'd know him. He played Linoli in Love Hate. Yeah. yeah. No, uh, man, and, yeah. and of a story I'd love to tell actually about him. But uh, but I went down to the flats and I was just seeing, just this like the fucking sight. Like everybody's out and everybody, everybody knew each other. You know, and they had this fucking, this intimacy and closeness. And it was just fucking beautiful to see right in the bang in the middle of the city people who were among the most fucking impoverished and discriminated against from a state level all were still together, you know, in a, in a, in a beautiful way. And actually, Stephen Clinchy, I call him, he got up and sang. He sang a song. Like, he would never, he would never uh, turn down any opportunity to, to perform mm. uh, or to show off. He was a real, real show off. Like, um, I remember he did, um, he did a number of films with me and with Peter Coonan. You know Peter Coonan who plays Fran? Yeah, yeah. Right. Yeah. So I told the story at his funeral, right? And I'm the only one who knows the story because it started with me, and I saw the whole dynamics of the whole thing, right? And I told it at his funeral because I felt I had to tell it, and I'll tell you why. Anyway, I'm there, and uh, I'm there one day on the campsite, and Clinchy comes over to me, and it's a Wednesday. Now I bring Clinchy over to collect his fee every Wednesday, right? But I'm clever enough now after a few years of doing it to not not pick him up afterwards because he's out of his fucking head because yeah. he's done that much fucking fight, right? And he won't stop fucking talking, right? And he's cleaned the gaff a million miles now. He's trying to clean my gaff yeah. and all this stuff. <laughs> so I leave him there, right? But a few hours later, he comes back out of his head on the fire, right? And he's like, John, John, what's up, John? I go, oh, he's wrecking me fucking head now, but I can't tell him. He's a good friend of mine, blah, blah, blah. And then I says, right, I know what to do. What happened was I just got the new love-hate scripts Right, and he didn't get them because he was a smaller part. He'd only give them to the leader, leading characters. And I read the script and I seen that Peter Coonan is in the prison and he goes into the shower and like, these fellas attack him, and he smashes them all up, including Clinchy. Now Clinchy, just to put it into context, had been smashed up by Peter Coonan in many films now, maybe six or seven, and Clinchy was sick of his bollocks of getting smashed <laughs> up by Peter. And I told Clinty, I said, Clinty, see the new script, see what happened, Peter smashes you and two other, three other fellas up. What? No fucking way! And I said, I got him now, at least he leave me, leave me alone, you know? And then I went, hang on, oh shit. I said, don't be ringing Stuart, the lovehead writer. I said, don't be ringing Stuart now. I said, what am I at the cause of there? Like, this is blackguard and I'm at the down, right? So anyway, he says, well, no, I promise I won't, I won't, right? So he goes back, already out his head on fire, and goes back and slugs eight cans at them and rings Stuart Carnum. Yeah. Stuart, what the fuck? John told me about what happens, blah, 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 blah. And Stuart's going, oh, shit, no. He said, that's fucking unrealistic. I've done 23 years in fucking prison, which he did. And he knows the scene, you know what I mean? And fair play to Stuart, the real open artist that he is. Stuart goes, you know what, Clinchy? You're right. You're right. He wouldn't do that. He wouldn't get away with that either. You're right. He says, what will we do? So Clinchy goes, let me fucking rape him. And Stuart goes, oh, would you do that? And he went, yeah. He was looking for his revenge, right? Okay. So Stuart gets on the phone to RT because you have to ask, can I write this in first of all? Like, and he says, he wants the rain, blah, blah, blah. And he went, no way, no way. No way is that happening. Which I found weird because they allowed the rape uh, with, uh, yeah. with the character of... of uh, the in the character. back of the pub. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was very vicious, you know. But anyway, they, they picked and chose the rapes, of course. So he went back. <laughs> <laughs> so he went back. Went back to Clinchy, and he says, "Listen, he won't allow it, Clinchy. Well, let me stick the pool cue up his arse." So they go back to RTE, and RTE says, "Yeah, pool cue, no bother, right?" So anyway, Clinchy's reveling in this. He loves it. He's done it. He's going to stick this straight up and all this. He's telling me all this, you know. It's, it's just to me hilarious, right? So I'm on the set, and I'm in the unit base, and I look out, and I'm smoking a fag. And I see Peter Coonan playing Fran, right? And Peter walks over, just watching him walk over, and he hasn't seen the new scripts yet because he won't email them to you. 
they yeah. give them in person, right? It's so secretive. They're trying to keep the plot um, secret. So he goes over to Edo, the second AD, and he gets the script. And he pulls over the scenes. And he looks over and he just goes, <gasps> and he's in shock. And I start laughing, breaking me bollocks. I know what he's reading. That pool cue is getting shoved up <laughs> his hole, right? So Peter's like, oh, no, no. And he goes next door into the trailer, right? The next trailer to me, but I can hear it through the wall. And he's going, uh, Stuart, he got on the phone. Yeah. Stuart, uh, hi, um, oh, Jesus, it's great writing and all that. Yeah, no, uh, powerful stuff. But, you know, what about the version before and all? And Stuart's going, whatever, no, no, this is it, this is it. So Peter's like, fucking hell, like he's, he's nervous, you know? And then the day he comes back and he has to shoot it. And I swear to God, boys, he walks, he walks off and he comes back from shooting it. Now, if you're doing a scene like that, one man you don't want to be in the scene with is Clinchy. Because Clinchy didn't act. Clinchy just became... Yeah. He just was. Like, if he's going to try to shove that up here for real, that's the kind of man Clinty is. Like, just a madman, but a beautiful soul. So anyway, he comes back. I obviously didn't see the scene being shot, but he comes back, and I swear to God, boys, he had a blanket around him, Peter, and he looked like Jodie Foster in The Accused. I said, <laughs> I said, the poor fella. So he ends up trying to get at the very top of the queue for lunch, and Clinty shouted up, I thought I told you to get at the end of the fucking queue. Uh, yeah. <laughs> the whole crowd started everybody started laughing the extra started laughing so I'm in, the, I'm in the church and I'm going will I tell the story or not you know will I tell it because I know Clinton would love me to tell it you know and I said nah fuck it I won't it's too you know in front of the priest and all you know and then everybody you know it's too controversial and whatever and Peter what's he going to think you know it's just the truth you can't be killed for the truth or you can nowadays I suppose but anyway so he's, I just seen I just seen the gifts were given up you know the, 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 the religious gifts and I seen the queue getting given up. No and went, way. And the whole crowd started laughing. And I went, that's like a sign. Yeah. I have to tell this fucking story. Yeah. So I went up and I says, Father, please forgive me. I'm going to have to jump into the confession box next, but I'm going to have to say some shit that I have to say. And that's it. And the priest half of was laughing his head off as well. What can yeah, you do? Like? Yeah, yeah. But that was Clinchy, like a mad extreme fella. Like, but funniest, funniest man I've ever met. Jokes, jokes coming out of him, you know. And a brilliant actor, like brilliant And what flats was he from? Well, he was from everywhere. He was from, I think, Foley Street and then Millbrook and Darndale. Like, it depends yeah. where, who he was talking to, he'd tell you before. Yeah. Yeah, one yeah. or the other, he was, a, you know, a blackguard like that, like, but a yeah. gift to the gab, like, you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah. And, and it's just a, just a great human being, man. Like, and someone who lived on the edge all his life, struggled with addiction, he ended up getting, you know, he ended up going back to prison about seven or eight years ago. He, he held up, I think it was the, the living room. room. yeah. And he did it with no bullets in the gun. Yeah. You know what I mean? And that's the type of fella Clinty was because he would never shoot anybody. But, um, you know, struggling with addiction and all this, lads, you know. But anyway, people damned him over that. I fucking stood up in court for him still. I didn't give a box to my mates and my mate. And uh, when he came out then, he went back doing a little bit of acting gigs and then struggling again and... Yeah, then it was kind of a, then he was back to himself um, when he died. When he died, it was just I think it was just the pressure of all that stuff throughout the years and his heart, you know. And Clancy had freaking nearly died when about fifteen years ago, but his lungs got trained, you know. So I, I'd say he just wasn't the healthiest person. Mm. He was actually off the drugs when he ended up dying. It's always the fucking irony, you know. Mm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that thing you were saying about the, the in town, I always say it to, about my mad all the turns. 
like we'll go into the house and she'll be like, who'd you have on? And I could say any fucking name in the world. I could say we had some fella that they only discovered in the Amazon last week and she'd make me cousin in 20 seconds. Yeah, yeah. Like yeah. everyone we have on, and I always say about town, don't throw a stone because you'll hit your cousin. <laughs> Everyone's well, fucking related. It's a real county thing though, isn't it? Like it's like everybody in the flats is like, that's your cousin, that's your second cousin, that's your third cousin. Like everybody. Everyone's related. Even if you don't have the same second name or nowhere near the same second name and you're all fucking related. Like That's, that's lovely, lads. That's a joke I always make. That's why I got with a board from Wexford just to be safe. That wasn't going there. anyone from my cousin. That's going to be my cousin. And all you were talking about, the elder, I want to give a shout out to my nana, Alice, because she uh, watches all the episodes on YouTube. Uh, Alice. She's lovely, a big lovely to meet you. Online. She's a big as a she's a big fan of the podcast. Uh, she does she at the live, every episode. Every episode. She was at the last. Think of that. She was at the last live show. No, I try not to because Good. I was at the start. I used to think about stuff that I was saying, and I'm like, ah, you, you can't. You mentioned sex to Calvin in the first few episodes. Ah, John. Ah, bro. Like, no. <laughs> should we talk about yeah. that? But, uh, me nana Alice, 82, 83, she is, loves a drink as well. She locked that one of the live shows. So. Ah, she <laughs> should be at. She was at the last one. She at the last one. Yeah, great. She at the last one. Any more coming up? Uh, no, not as of yet. You've done a good few now. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> oh, <what? laughs> we have something in the works, okay, John. Yeah, works. You just didn't want to show you. Yeah, yeah. I haven't got not, It's not showing. Yeah. But we're waiting to pen it. How, how does it feel for you, lads? Like, just how this thing is blowing up. It's become a huge thing, a huge platform, and you're getting a lot of attention, both of you online. Mm. Uh, you know, it's you're becoming a part of the kind of Irish lexicon, the culture. Like you're seen as kind of those figures now. Well, how does it feel? It must you know be what? bizarre. I'd love to. I'd love to give you an honest answer of how it feels, mm. but it doesn't feel like anything. Yeah, mm. I still do the same things I would have been doing if I hadn't got the podcast. Like, well, well, well I definitely would. How do you deal with the attention then? I don't. I just take it and destroy it, John. Like, like we. No, I. I love meeting people and and they come up and they talk to us about it. But I hate when people come up and they go, "Oh my God." I can't believe I'm at the scene because we're really like we're so ordinary like, yeah like there's nothing to we think it's an anti-climax when people meet us like oh my god you're the boys at the podcast yeah, and we're like what the normal fellas because you wouldn't be soaring like this if you were ordinary yeah I just I think but people like, even after yeah. we play the EP but I weekend, know what you mean you have humility yeah like I'm just a normal young you're never going to forget it yeah yeah, yeah the, we play the EP the weekend and the amount of personal messages I've got off friends off lifetime friends who are like uh, like like, they were just congratulating me and being like, that's unbelievable. Even when we sold out Vicar Street and stuff, they were like, you really need to, like, take that in and stuff. And I'm just like, even after, we just went to another tent and had a party and mm. I went to bed that night. We, we, went, we went straight off the stage and met the lads and got something to eat. And, got and they queued up like everybody else and was like, grand. And then after getting the field, the people were like, ah, talking about looks and we're like, oh, yeah, sound. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, like nothing, nothing changes. Like, and, do you know what? I actually think sometimes I would like to... I said to Calvin, uh, the live show you were on, that moment when Kurt on, like, guys, got up there, lads, and he was singing the song, and we were all had our arms around each other. I think I did, I took her in, but I, I wish I had to took her in more mm. in the moment. Because, like, I think I had to see it from the other side, though. Because on the stage, we're looking out the crowd, and it's unreal. But afterwards, from the crowd's point of view, I was looking at that, and I was getting a bit emotional. I was like, yeah. that is such a good moment. Like, mm. I look back on that in 20 years yeah. and be like, that's so You're special. so filled with adrenaline in those moments. It is hard. It is, isn't it? To, 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 to really actually take it in as nourishment. Like, Yeah. But it's a big achievement. Do you, do you have girlfriends? I do, yeah. No, we yeah, don't. Never no, she, interesting. She was late. <laughs> she she just be crying now as well. How she long have you been with her? Eight, yeah. Oh, fuck. So she's seen this on the whole. I'm basically we're at as well. She puts up her arm, my shit. Become as a trio now. Yeah, trio now we are. Yeah. But uh, yeah. like just from what you said when people meet, it was like just 
to stay humble and humility, my friends and all that for me, sure, like take him down. We were on the same time as Belters only. You, yeah. You'd know Robbie, yeah. obviously, from yeah. uh, your neck of the woods, yeah. Sean. Yeah, but, he's brilliant. Oh, Robbie's, Robbie's a bleeding legend. Like. Are, yeah. But uh, the boys were on the same time as us and like, we're thinking, first of all, I was thinking, bollocks, we're going to miss the lads. And then second of all, I was thinking, sure, everyone who's going to come to us will want to be at their fucking gig. So all my mates, well, literally, we started at five o'clock. All my mates come in at five o'clock and left at 5.01. <laughs> you know what I mean? So they let you know. Like, yeah, yeah. They, they don't give they, a bollocks. Like they literally said, we just came to show a face. We showed a they face. don't give a bollocks, yeah. Uh, and do you know what? I couldn't argue with them over that. Belters yeah. only were, for me, the all, no, they weren't. Gemma don't even know there, but they were like, Belters only were like, I can't wait to see them. And then yeah. I find out we're on at the same time and I'm like, bollocks. Of course, yeah. well, we're going to have no one in the tent. And now we get to fucking miss them as well. But all the lads were like, oh, yeah, we'll pop up, we'll pop up. Well, it was like, if that was me on the other end, they'd be like, I was actually even saying to them, you don't have to. Mm. Like, you don't have to enjoy as a weekend. Yeah, and it, it is a music festival, it is. But the tournament we did end up getting was mad. Yeah. They just show for one minute support, you don't really care. You're your mates. Like, yeah. who cares? It's you your job really at this yeah. age. You know but what like, I mean? they do think it's mad. Like, we'd be out and someone asked for a pitch on, they'd be like, this is fucking crazy. Because, like, to them, like, we're still the normal fellas. Like, yeah. we still go out the weekends. We still go to the like, after watch the match together. We still fucking talk shit to each other, you know what I mean? Or whatever. We still have the same routines. 100%. You know what I mean? Yeah. It's just. You're just keeping staying who you yeah. are. And I was saying to you outside, John, how do you, you were asking me how do I find a meeting these people. This is something that we think we have and people have said it to us, but you don't really pay attention to it. Like, we disarm people. Mm. So we never bow down to anyone when they come in and be like, oh my God, look at what it is. Just like, what's the story? Do you want a cup of water or a cup of coffee or something? And we go in and have a chat. And that's how it is. Yeah. And I think some people need that to be like, not tucked down a peg, but just be brought down to earth and be like, just a normal person and we're having a conversation with you. Well, it's very admirable because we're living in a real online world that's obsessed with fame and success mm. and all that stuff. It's hard to keep your, you know, especially if you're someone who comes from a sort of background where you don't get that kind of attention, you know. What what I see with a lot of people who go online is they kind of, the balance, they haven't got the balance right between their self-esteem and ego. Yeah. So their self-esteem is so low that they have to overcompensate by having a big ego. And need to be validated yeah, online validated then. All, you know? Yeah. But obviously you're, you're, fucking, you're, you're humble. Yeah. So we're so. queuing up to get me ticket at Electric Picnic in the performers queue and I'm thinking like, jeez, imagine you met someone famous there. Yeah. Then I copped on Anyone who's anybody in Electric yeah. can get someone else to collect that ticket so for them. I remember sleeping with the entity. We were up in fucking the Hellfire Club and all the lads going, that's the fucking talking bollocks, lad. <laughs> yeah. the talking bollocks. But they were but they were sound as well because yeah. I guess, and I'm a listener as well, you know, I, I listen rather than watch it. I don't really watch podcasts anymore. I prefer to listen because it's just for me eyes. Yeah. Uh, you know, the, the blue screens and all. But you, you, when you get, when you when you listen to podcasts uh, regularly, you get to know those, those people. Yeah. And they were very respectful to you. Yeah. Like they were very respectful and when you actually asked them lads uh, we have to kind of film there we don't just and they just left Yeah. whereas I was just asking them to kind of step outside for a minute and they were like no we'll go we'll go and you, there was a nice there was a nice kind of vibe between you you know because they felt like mm. they know you I think that's you know? the thing with podcasts yeah. they've heard so much about us so but listen less about us John this is your podcast <laughs> there, you know what I mean while you're sitting here like oh yeah we're all high and mighty no, but it's interesting that all lads like, like I'm big fans of both of you lads as, as human beings mm. uh, I think you're very sound fellas and I think you're a real genuinely a, a real good thing that's happening in Ireland and I think you're giving the youth a nutrition you know particularly the working class people and anybody from any background um but yeah, no, I just, I love the way you're all handling. You're handling in a beautiful way. Because oftentimes we see people who come from our background and we'll, they let it go to their head. Mm. And they fuck it up. 
because there was that chip in the shoulder, you know, and they, you know what I mean, and they, and they run with it, but you're, you're keeping your feet on the ground. Yeah. Maybe a part of it is because you don't drink as well, you're not into that kind of, Could that's be. a whole other ego-driven world as well, like, you know what I mean? Mm. Yeah. Look, thanks, Sean, we do appreciate that. <laughs> as I said, it's all about you. <laughs> so, John, what we do with every guest, you probably know anyways, God, bring us back to the start for you, what was life like growing up for you, and where you grew up, and what life was like growing up, and yeah. how you got to where you are. So, with me, I suppose, some of my life was shaped before I was born. And that sounds weird, but my father was a schizophrenic, right? Paranoid schizophrenic from a young age. And him and my mother were engaged for about three years. And he was about 19, she was about 18. And one night he was drunk. A bad thing to do with drunk when you're, when you're paranoid schizophrenia. And he hijacked a taxi. <laughs> and he crashed into a wall. And he broke his hip. And then he was put on armed guard in the hospital. Now, they were engaged for three years or whatever. Long engagement, travellers and all that. And they were about to be fucking uh, married. So my mother goes in to visit him. And she escapes from out the rear window. And they go on a ferry and they go to England. And I was born in England because of that. A fact my brothers will never let me forget. Right? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> You're British bastard, right? So anyway, born there, came back. Born there in King's Cross, came back at 11 months. And living in and around kind of Kulak, North Dublin. All my life, Darndale, Bell Camp and all that stuff. And my father was a fucking great man, despite the fact that he was a paranoid schizophrenic. He was uber intelligent. He'd always get you to ask questions. He thought outside the box and he was a little bit alienated to other traveller men because he was kind of peculiar and, and intellectual and kind of academic, you know. He was very very smart in school growing up and a bit of a prodigy. And um, he taught me and my brother Joe to fucking read at like three and a half, four. We started reading at home. Like, you know, we were, like my, my teacher just told me, my play school teacher I bumped into the other day, Mrs. Moore, she said, you and Joe were were, uh, were reading before you could even walk. It was mad. And it was down to my father. Like, And it's not saying nothing about my mother. My mother would be first to admit that. He was just that type of person. You know, He believed in education and he was very smart. And he wanted us to kind of do something different in life. You know, But he had his problems. And obviously there was episodes we witnessed. Like I you know, I came into, came into the room one time looking for him. My mother actually sent me in to, to, to bring him out for food for a fry. And... There was foam coming out of his mouth and tablets everywhere. He tried to kill himself, and this was probably, God knows how many times, you know. And we used to visit him in Port Rand, St. Ida's Mental Hospital there. And we thought we were going to visit him in a dojo, right? And he was he was getting his black belt. So he was always waiting to get the black belt. So we, we and, and all the people who worked in there, the orderlies, would go along with it, you know. Mm. And he'd be doing all the, and we, like, it's mad, but we taught it, we and we go out to we go out to the back and we'd be playing kung fu and whatever. And we'd ask him when are you getting out now, and this were kind of different stints all the time. And after he, he tried that time to kill himself, we moved out of the flats, which was a flat we were living in a Kilmore in the flats in Kilmore there. Yeah, and we moved back into the camp, me, 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 me mother and me brothers, um, to move back in with her family and, and kind of go the traditional way, you know. And he he arrived one day, um. And he was really erratic and he kind of scared me and my brother, Joe, you know. And I remember, because this was this image never left me, still hasn't left me. But we rejected him, you know, because he was trying to bring us somewhere or whatever. But we just, as kids, just sensing a bit of danger. And it wasn't really danger per se, just he looked different. Yeah. He, was, he had a different energy about him, you know. And I remember he left the camp 
and and I felt fuck. I shouldn't have rejected him. I remember as a kid just thinking I shouldn't have rejected him because he was like my hero, you know. But I knew something was wrong, and especially after witnessing him trying to kill himself, it was all turned into chaos. And I was just a kid trying to understand what was happening with these problems that were surrounding me, you know. Luckily, he had my mother, who was, you know, the best ever. I just couldn't say enough about her. So anyway, a few days later, I'm in the backfield, and I hear my father calling me. And this is why he can never be an atheist. Um, he was saying, John, oh, John, oh, where are you, where are you? And this went on for about 10 minutes. And I was saying, Daddy, where are you? Where are you? And I was shouting and shouting and shouting. I went into my mother, and I says, Mommy, I said, Daddy keeps calling me on the backfield, but I can't see him anywhere. Like, he's doing it the last 10 minutes or whatever. And she went, oh, no, she knew he was back in the mental hospital, or meant to be. And an hour later, we were eating our dinner in the trailer. Two guards came in and told us he was found dead a few days before this, drowned in the river. He killed himself. But yet I heard his voice. So the aftermath of that is, you, for years you don't even realise what's happening. You don't know, understand why you're behaving in such a way. And Like me and Joe started kind of acting out and... We then got bullied a lot by travellers who lived in Ireland. I grew up in a lane where there was like about a thousand travellers, like, and it was like fucking Beirut. You know, you had to fight, go to school, and fight, come to school. So we'd be fighting fucking all the way. And because we had no father, we were seen as weak because we hadn't got a father to show us the, the manly way of life and to be men and fight and, or go working and all that. So we were seen as weak by other adults too. And that was the worst. We got bullied physically, emotionally, but the worst was the stuff that you'd hear them say about you that you weren't meant to hear. Oh, like, they're just too old, innocent boys. They're never going to... Their daddy's gone. Their daddy was a mental man. He killed himself. You know what they're going to end up like? You know all that stuff? That did a lot of damage to myself and my brother Joe. So we went to school. We'd, we got segregated in school, put in an all-traveller class, despite the fact that me and Joe academically were doing great. Um, so you're kind of getting rejection all around, a lot of trauma, a lot of bullying. And I couldn't understand it all, you know. But I kept thinking of a few different things that we found at home. One was never back down from the fight, which got me in a lot of trouble. Mm. I would never say I'm bed in a fight. And I was beaten to a pulp loads of times. And the other one was asking questions. Another dangerous thing to do, yeah. ask questions. So I was doing all that. And then I realized one day it had a kind of epiphany. I think it was after watching fucking Rocky for the million time. I said, I'm going to join boxing. That's the way. I'm going to bait these bastards. So I joined boxing. And I went to the club. And Joe Russell, who's from Sheriff Street, a Bartler, Bartler Russell, old school trainer, basically Mickey out of Rocky, yeah. Dublin accent, that's him, right, yeah. old school. He said, uh, this is your fourth night, your last night, uh, when you get home, when you get back from the jog, take your jacket and fuck off. This is what he said to us as kids, right? Like, this is before PC culture. So I said, all right, I was kind of intimidated. So we all go for the jog, and what that really was, was a test to see how well you were going to do on the jog. So me and my other two friends who came along, two other travelling over us, we jogged up to the private road and back. Now, I was a little overweight at the time, but I ran myself into the ground to get back, and it did way better than what I should have done. And we went back to the club then, and we did pads, and I hit the pads with absolute fucking venom. And I think at the time, he saw the rage in me, and there's something going on with him. He's not, he's not all right. Like. So at the end of the night, we did our sit-ups and all that, and he, sent, he said to the other two, he said, you fuck off, and he said, you come back Wednesday. So I came back Wednesday, that Wednesday. And within six months, nine months, I won the Dublins, I won the Leagues, I won the Leinsters, and I won the All-Irelands. And that was the first Irish champion in five years in my club. And my club was a decorated club, hugely, in the past. And that was yeah. kind of a thing of the past. And I kind of brought it back in a way, won an Irish title. And then the next year, 
I won the same again and I went to the Four Nations and I lost nine kilos in about two or three days to get on the scales just to make the weight. And I lost in the final, which fucking nearly killed me, except I lost against the Welshman, so it wasn't too bad if he was English. <laughs> I'd be fucked. So the year after, I went back for revenge, but I made sure to jump up two weights as opposed to jumping up one, so I'm never going to make that mistake again. And in the final, I was fighting an English fella, and the night before, the fight, because we're staying in the same hotel, he says, he came up to me, he says, are you John Connors? And I went, yeah. He said, oh, I'm going to knock you out, you paddy cunt. And the Irish were very humble boxers, but we don't brag, you know. And I went, all right, no matter. Gets into the ring, and I'm in the final, and Tony David, an old Dublin coach from Drimna, who's still knocking about, was in the corner. And I won the first round 7-1. Now, if you win the first round 7-1, you know to crack yourself, just coast and win the fucking fight. Tony David, the old madman, come up, he said, Johnny Connors, come on, do more, do more, knock him fucking out. The worst advice ever. I was fucking coasting. I should have just... Yeah. So I went in to go knock him out and I ended up dropping him and breaking one of his ribs and won by knockout. And uh, he, had to, he, he had to hold his ribs while he was in the second place on the podium. And I had the tricolour over, wrapped around me and the Irish national anthem. And I went home and I showed my brother to the DVD. And my brother Joe says, but you should have been fighting for Britain. Oh, <laughs> you dirty bastard. <laughs> but that thing really, that did that shaped a lot of my psychology, not feeling Irish enough, you know? Like I was living in a camp with 52 first cousins around me. Mm. 12 un uncles and aunts, third cousins, second cousins, grandparents, you name it, friends of the family. And there was about 20 of us that were born in England and we were seen as the English cousins. And we all grew up to be extra Irish, yeah. wanting to prove our Irishness, yeah. you know what I mean? So I'm just mentioning that for to show you that's kind of the, how I developed and that's why I took an interest in Irish history and wanting to be more, I'm being politicised. And then what happened was I realised at a certain point I kind of, uh, boxing wasn't doing it all for me. It was a way of expressing yourself, but, but in expressing myself and getting all these bullies back, which I wrote them all down in the book and I got them all back one by one. For, it took me about three or four years to get them all back and I eventually knocked every single one of them out, put some of them in hospital. And eventually then, um, something was going on. I, I couldn't really figure out what was going on, you know. I, I just felt this thing in my stomach, like late teens, going, what am I doing? And I started getting involved in things and a bit of crime and fighting and street fighting and bare knuckle fighting. But still this thing kept haunting me and I was like, what the fuck is going on? Like, And I didn't know at the time what it was, which was basically everything I buried, everything I put beneath the iceberg, everything I repressed because unresolved trauma comes back to collect. And it was coming out in very destructive nuclear button type behavior, you know, which I have that nuclear button in me. And I'm very aware of it now. Back then I didn't didn't know. So I, I got involved in some stuff I didn't want to get involved. I ended up pulling out of that. And then I spent about 18 months eating myself into a fucking coma nearly. Again, the eight stone in, eight, in, eight, in 18 months. And the only time I left the room was to go to the cinema uh, or buy DVDs. And... Um, I just would watch it obsessively. I remember going to the cinema and watching Sex and the City 2. It's the only man in the cinema because I'd watch anything just to escape because my father used to bring me to the cinema. First film I ever watched was Space Jam with my father in 1995 or 6 of us and then he'd bring us all the time. That was a thing to do and all the films that I love now he introduced me to them like Scarface and Goodfellas and the Scorsese stuff and all that stuff. So it was always an escapism, you know? So, mm. And I, I mean, youth, I'd always beg my mother on a Sunday if she had enough money to send us to the cinema. And the worst thing she did was say, yeah, because we'd bonk into three or four other films that day, you know what I mean? But it was escapism because whatever happens still to this day when I when I have really bad anxiety or whatever, when I go to the cinema, it just switches something off of me and I get to escape to that world for two hours or whatever. Now, you know, I fucking love it. So I got really bad to the point where my family knew something was going on and one day I said, fuck it, like I wanted to kill myself and I, the reason I didn't was because of my mother. I thought of the cry that she she cried 
for like four years after my father died because you remember we were staying in the same trailers you can hear everything you know and it was a horrible sound of your mother crying you know every night going to bed so that was the thing that stopped me and at a certain point the pain was that bad it was like a knife in my stomach that I went I don't care I'm going to be selfish here this is the way I looked at it in my head You're being, I'm going to be selfish and I'm going to take the way out and I'm going to kill myself that's what I decided and in that moment I just got a knock on the door and it was me brother Joe and he came in and he said, are you going to kill yourself? And I went, what? I was like, how the fuck does he know? And I went, no. But I gave him an indication that I was. Because I wasn't brave enough to say it, but I was so desperate to talk, to get it off my mind. So, typical Irish and how we deal with things with a sense of humor, we said, because please, man, we can't afford to bury you. <laughs> <laughs> but that was legit. He meant that to shame, you know what I mean? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so he said, look, you need to do something, man. You need to, like, me brother Joe, super, super intelligent fella, you know. He's 19 years of age and he's talking to me about finding a purpose, passion and meaning. You know, that's the Viktor Frankl principles that, that came from him, his experience in the Holocaust and he wrote a whole book on it that changed the psychological world. Joe knew this at 19 without reading fucking Viktor Frankl. Mm-hmm. He's just that type of fella, you know, very intelligent. And he said, look, man, I'm not leaving this room until you fucking tell me what you want to do in your life. You need a new purpose because boxing obviously is gone now and you don't want to go back for whatever reason, but you need to find something else. He said, look, since you're a kid, you've been obsessed with films. Why don't you try acting? And I went, acting? Yeah. Okay. And I'd done a course in FOSS four years previous to this, and it was a six-week course, and at the end of it all, the tutor stopped me from going up to the final class because of his ego, because I liked doing the acting more than his metalwork course that he was teaching. And I ended up, he came up and made a show of me in front of everybody. And I ended up breaking the place up. And that was, that's how I ended up getting involved in all street stuff and all that, because I lost my purpose in the force. But the acting was nearly there to save me. So I thought back at that time and I went, Jesus. I went, okay, let's try it. So Joe brought in his laptop and we Googled acting classes in Dublin and the Abbey School of uh, Music and Drama came up and no affiliation to the Abbey Theatre and the Abbey Theatre will make sure and tell you that it was just on the same street. So I rang up Kathleen Mourner Yates, who was on the other side of the phone. She's the head of it, a brilliant woman. And I explained to her, I never really done any acting a little bit. Back when I was 16, I did a little workshop. And she said, why don't you try adult for fun? And I went, adult for fun? I was fucking full of rage and depression. I knew I needed something intense, like a life jacket. So she said, there's a scene study course, but you know everybody's very experienced, they have degrees and what, what, what not. And I said, I'll do that. So... I had me dole. I think I had 80 quid left out of me dole at the time. And then I got the rest of the money on me, me brother and me uncle. And then I needed five quid then to get in and out of town. At the time, you, get in, you could get into town in and out <laughs> five quid that time. I think it's like a million euro now. <laughs> but uh, I got the last five robbed me mother and she was just happy to see me leave the house. So I sat around in the circle in the, in the acting class and I was shitting it. And everybody was explaining what he'd done and the experience that he did. And someone around the Abbey stage and did films and TV shows. And they came around to me and I said, I basically did nothing like so. And they were like, oh, I was going to laugh and all. I said, oh, fuck. I need to get out of here. I need to run. I need to feel comfortable. I need to bury my head in the sand. That's what I need to do. That's the way here. Yeah, good choice, John. So an improvisation game unfolded in front of me, which this fella from a very upper-class background was the customer. And the shopkeeper was this black Brazilian man. But whatever the customer went along with, the shopkeeper would have to go along with. So whatever kind of shop he said, your man would have to go along with the improv, making it up as you go along. So your man left the room, the upper class fella, and 
when it came back in, it was, and he decided that, yeah, I think I'm looking for that vanilla, vanilla protein on the top shelf. And he basically met it about his body because he was in good shape, fella. So he met at the health store. You lead him with the ego. And people were kind of laughing. And then it, to me, it turned a bit racist, a bit bigoted, the scene. He was making a laugh of your man's accent and that. And I could relate. And yeah. I went, okay, now I'm enraged. Now I want to kill this fella. So when the scene ended, the upper class fella became the shopkeeper and they were looking for a new customer to dictate the scene and make up the improv. So I volunteered. So you have to leave the room. So I left the room and you have to do all this and all, whatever the fuck, prepare. And I left the room and I was fucking, I was enraged, but I was terrified. I was going, what do I do? Do we go back in the room? Do we fuck off? What do I do? And me rage inside superseded every other emotion. So I ran through the door and I started slapping the face off the other actor and I robbed the place. I turned it into a bank and I started, said, where's the cash and whatever? And I grabbed these shoes, took them off, grabbed these socks, took them off and was about to take off his trousers when the teacher came in and said, John, John, please stop, stop now. And I just snapped out of the rage and I went, oh shit, ran out of the class, ran down the next stairs. Teacher ran after me. John, John, come back, come back. And I said, you're going to call the guards and all year. Ran down, out uh, down Abbey Street. She chased after me. John, please stop, stop. And I said, what? And she went, you're fucking crazy. But I like it. <laughs> I said, right. She said, come back up and don't touch anybody ever again. They're my fucking students, okay? But you have some. Let's go up and see what else you have. So I went back up and they all gave me a clap out of fear. <laughs> and... Uh, I was given a scene to learn. I think I had 10 weeks to learn the scene. I learned it by the next morning, six o'clock in the morning because I couldn't sleep because I'm an obsessive person. Find something I like and just do it to the end. You know, because I found a world that was just different. It was like uh, walking through a portal. Uh, creativity. What the fuck is this? This is addictive. This is deadly. This is the place that you go to to take substances, you know, but you're doing it sober, you know, and that's when I learned the power of that and it saved me life. Acting saved me life. Creativity saved me life. That outlet saved me life, you know. Mm. So that brought, that brings me up to about 20 before I started professionally acting. So, right, that was a lot there. So what was the first then? So that's, what was your first proper gig then? Mm. What's the first thing you got into? When you start making a name for yourself? So I heard about a, a film that was auditioning Real Travers. It was called King of the Travers. And I went and auditioned for it in film base. I showed up an hour and a half early. I was that excited. And your man, the director, Mark O'Connor, is now a friend of mine who directed Carver Gangsters and Stalker and King of Travellers as well and the Dark Darkland show. He uh, he asked us all, does anybody know what improv is? So I said, yeah, I know what improv is. I've done some class. And he was like, oh, right, deadly. So I did an improvisation with Michael Collins, who was the first traveller actor, the fellow was in Glen Row. And um, it went great. And I went, jeez, I think I killed that there. And uh, six weeks goes by in a hair knot. And I said, oh, fuck. <laughs> Obviously, they didn't fucking get it. I'm delusional, right? Mm. So then Mark gets back to me and he was like, listen, I've written a part for you, a new part in the script. I was reading and I was like, fucking written a part, fucking deadly. I think it was in like seven or eight scenes. Like, to put in the context, like, when you get into acting first, like, especially coming from my background, you have no fucking, like, if I got one small part in 10 years, it would be a big thing. Never yeah. mind a fucking six, seven scenes in a feature-length script in a million budget film, you know what I mean? It's the highest unemployment rate out there, isn't yeah, it, being an actor? Yeah, of course. Yeah. Sure, you're going, wow, that's amazing. And then they rehearsed us for three months like you would with a play because it was all non-actors, all traveling non-actors. And after rehearsing us for three months, uh, they sacked the lead and they gave me the lead. And the lead was a childhood friend of mine, John Collins, a very good friend of mine to this day. All the Collins is actually, I'm very good. I grew up with the Collins, they're like family to me. And we would be far out relatives, but we all grew up in the boxing clubs, a lot of respect for each other. And John turned around and said to them, I hope John Connor's getting that part. And he went, yeah. 
So that's kind of respect I have for John. And I did that film in King of the Travelers. And then uh, I remember uh, before I shot it, um, a casting director went into the Darndale Box Club looking for tough looking fellas for Love Hate. I was just there hitting the bag. And my coach said, Oh, I'm, uh, John Connors here. He's done a few acting classes. He's doing some other film, King of the Travelers, now in November or whatever. And I think this this was due to shoot in the next month or two. And so they came over to me. Are you interested in acting? Yeah. Well, we're looking for like special extras. You know, you could get a line, you might not, you might not. And this is where kind of serendipity comes in because I land on set and I connect with the director straight away, Dave Caffrey, who's lived in London for years. And Dave drank in the Caledonian Road where I was fucking born and where my father drank in the pub and he knew the pub my father and he said I drank with all the travels I said you're probably drinking with my father you know? mm. and then he goes listen there's a few lines here do you want them and I went too fucking right I want them Yeah. But then I went I don't know about this line though you kind of wouldn't say that and he was like oh, I can't. I, my naivety you don't say that shit you know what I mean Like especially in TV you might get away with it in a film but TV is different you respect the writer right you know but so I naively said you'd say this instead and he went alright no bother so I said it whatever it was put a proper pop on it or whatever and then I went and did uh, Stalker after that, a film of Coro with Mark O'Connor, the director. And the two films, King of the Travers and Stalker, were premiering, this is after Love Hay came out then, were premiering in the Galway Film Fly in 2012. And after the second one, I think it was Stalker, Stuart Carlin came up to be the Love Hay writer. And he had watched the two films, King of the Travers and Stalker, and I was the lead in both of them. So he got to see me, what I was capable of. And he went, fuck John, you've come on a lot and blah, blah, blah. And it was my coincidence that you did that part because I wasn't casted. I was just a fucking extra and then I was given a few lines, you know. He says, um, you know, he says, you're country. He said, you kept me up at night with that improv you did because it was so good. And I went, oh, no way, yeah. He said, yeah, yeah. He said, I'd love to bring you back. And I said, where? Oh, to love hate? He said, yeah, yeah. I said, fucking game ball. He said, all right. He said, I'm going to figure out a way to bring you back. Now, I gave the pipe bomb to Nidge that blew up Franz Mrs. Linda's house. Yeah. Denise McCormick played that character. Now, it would seem so obvious now that that was the way to bring me back in to use Fran and Nids again. But when you don't know, you don't know. Yeah. It only becomes obvious when you know the, the solution to the problem. When the problem's there. So he was like figuring out what the problem is. And then he came back about three or four months later and sent me over the script. And I went, fuck, lovely. This is nice. Season four, I'm in episodes four, five, and six I come into it. And it was nice. Like, I'm going fucking deadly. A million people a week watching this thing. Why mm. not? And I did it. And uh, great crack. And then season five came around and he just came up to me and he said, look, John, what do you want to do? Your character's gone to England. You can stay in England, not come back to the show. Or you can come back to the show. And if you're coming back, you can go back in a small way or a big way. I said, what do you think? Yeah. <laughs> a big fucking way. You came back in the biggest fucking way. Yeah. You killed Nidge. Killed fucking Nidge, yeah. You killed Nidge. Yeah. Absolutely. So what happened then was he... He said, well, I need to nail the traveller side of it, the cultural side. So we spent weeks and weeks together and ringing on the phone four in the morning and all this stuff. And uh, he, I learned so much from writing from him. Like, he's a genius, like, legit, lads. Like, as a writer, there's no better. He's so fucking, so, so deep and, and philosophical. There's so much underneath his writing. It's not just on the nose, surface-level shit that you see in most stuff in Ireland. His all has subtext. Like the characters are always saying what's not, they're always saying what's not on their mind, you know? Mm. They, so they're always concealing what's really on their mind. And, it, and it, it's written in what the subtext is of the scene and it's fucking deadly. Yeah, That stuff is deadly because the work is done for you, like, you know? And then I remember the thing that we kind of talked about with Patrick, the character of Patrick was, that was interesting for both of us, that he was deeply religious, you know, a typical tramp or deep, deeply religious Catholic. So the idea of murdering somebody was a big thing to him. It wasn't just like Nades pulling a gun, bang, and killing somebody. This fella didn't want to go to hell. This fella had a real deep sense of morality and murder and what it means as a sin um, from a religious sense. 
So the question then becomes, what would it take for this man to murder somebody? And that question is a deep conflict, and that's what you want as an actor. You're going, fuck, this is, this is a drama. So it came about then that the character Thomas Collins, who was hired by Nidge, ends up shooting my kid and almost killing my kid. So then Stuart wrote a scene in which your man is hanging in the shed and I'm sitting in the shed. And the scene is the, the best writing I've ever encountered. Like, it's like Shakespearean. It's a big, like, for anybody who don't know a film, like, it, it's about seven pages. Like, that's a lot. Seven pages, a lot for a scene, like, a lot. And it's a monologue. It's theatre. That's what it is. And I read it and I went, fuck. And it was the easiest thing to ever learn because the writing was so good. Mm-hmm. But people worried about what, if it's hard to learn, it's because writing's not good. You don't believe in it. When you believe in the writing, you learn it like that. Yeah. And I just looked at this scene and I said, oh my God, this is what I wanted. This is what I fucking wanted. And what it is, it's so smart. It's Stuart writing the dialogue in a way that the character is essentially explaining to your man why he has to kill him. But we don't really know if he's going to do it until the last second. Yeah. But what he's trying to do is rid himself of the guilt. Yeah. You know, because he knows he has to do he's it. He's justifying it. Yeah. So it's like, in the end you're going, he's thinking out loud, do I kill this gunter or not? And then at the end it's like, hang on, you tried to kill my kid. Of course I'm going to fucking kill you. And someone asked me, easy, what about Pats? Because he's close to you, John. And I went, no, because I go even worse. <laughs> I have to torture him. Yeah. You know what I mean? But I'm not deeply religious. But that then when that happened, that just blew up like to the point where like, fuck me. Like I wasn't used to the, the attention and, and you know, everything, everything changed. Everything changed. Good, bad and the ugly. Oh, but John, the glove height was so fucking big. Like it, a million people a week watching it. I remember like I was in college at the time and we used to sit around, there used to be about 12 of us every Sunday night watching that together. And like, we people from all over the country watching it and there'd be a few of us. One of us actually from Darndale, I'm from town and we'd sit down and they'd be like, is it really that bad? And then obviously they'd be living in Dublin and they see things and I'd be like, you'd be surprised how like on the money Love Hate actually is. It's fucking deadly better writing. And there's, I don't think they've ever had a show like that and they haven't had anything close to it since that gripped the Bleeding Nation the way it did. Mm. Like, no matter where you are or what you were doing, you are watching RTE Sunday night at nine o'clock. Yeah, yeah, we did, we did it like eight years was the last episode. That was eight years ago. Yeah, eight years ago. 2014. And people come up to you like it was last year, when's the next season like? Yeah. And you know, it's it's funny. Like at this point, it's funny because it was so good, but he went out in the high like. And oh, I did, I did. If you, uh, if you brought it yeah. back now, you'd, you'd we, kill it. We like. shot three different endings for that. I know, yeah. because I seen, I remember seeing uh, a still for someone's funeral that didn't end up fucking dying. Yeah. Oh no, that was different because that was, that's what they did was, they just put that show on so people thought Elmo died. Yeah. So that was a separate thing. Yeah. That was all a camouflage. You had to do loads of like that. Yeah. Keep it watertight. But with, with the ending where I kill Nidge, there was also a version in which I get shot by his hitman. Right? Come, when, when I'm about to pull the trigger, his hitman, Alan, Alan Lennox, who's Clinty's son, comes up behind me, bang! And saves him. And we shot that. Yeah. And then we shot another one where I just shoot him and he gets away and we leave it on an edge. Oh, yeah. And yeah, then no yeah. one knew what the end that was. That would have killed me yeah. if that was the one. Yeah, I know. Because no, then it could always come no back. No one knew yeah. what the end was at all. No one knew. I didn't know. Nobody, none of the actors, uh, uh, Tom Valauda plays Nidge, who's one of the most beautiful human beings you'll ever meet. He didn't know. No one knew. But I knew from talking to Stuart in how the series was going. I knew he wanted to finish it. Yeah. And if he wanted to finish it, that means Ninja had to die. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? So, and then he dies, and then it's like, fucking, you're the fella killed Ninja then, all of a sudden. Yeah. <laughs> and that's a mad trip. <laughs> you're in town and you're in fucking Lilies, and the fella's come, why did you kill fucking Ninja? Yeah. Like, hello, blame the fucking writer. Yeah. You know what I mean? But, uh, but, but it was, it was a mad experience, but, but a great experience. I wouldn't fucking change it for nothing. Like, but people ask, was it enjoyable? It wasn't exactly because you're shooting sometimes 13, 14 pages in a day. To put that into context, people in Hollywood would shoot a half a page a page 
scene today. So you're running from one scene to the other, you know. Um, but there was adrenaline, and everybody who worked on that show was proud of working on it, and they all felt like we're doing a service, a service of entertainment for the Irish public. Oh, and we can are. all be proud of this, so everybody were willing to go the extra mile, to go over time, to give the last bit of sweat in them, you know? Yeah. And I, I seen Tom Von Lawler, who was a, was a great example of a talisman, of a leader. I remember uh, me and Barry Keoghan and him did a scene season four two of them attack me and it's a big violent scene and I stupidly wouldn't put the pad on being a macho man and then I had a fucking bruise that was fucking from my hip to my shoulder then forget about it but very bad pain anyway I'm limping off set and a few other people were there and I'm not going to mention who they were but they jumped on the bus people who were well known at the time I wasn't well known no one was shouting for me but all the kids were shouting for the actors and Tom Von Aller who's doing probably 13, 14 hour days learning lines outside of that in every single day for 12 weeks or whatever that's intense lads um, he stopped and he said to the driver come back in an hour and this was at the end of the day like a, a tough stunt scene lads where he's had to get a good few hits off me as well like I'm, I went hard I go I don't like with stunt stuff I go all out yeah. you're going to feel it you know what I mean and I expect to, I expect it back because I don't want to act I want it to be real I don't want to have to act you know yeah. what I mean and Tom got some hits that day and he's doing like this is near the end of the shoot and he stays back for an hour with them kids to do selfies and to say hello to everybody, all these kids who looked up to him, like, you know, and I went, that's a real man, that's a talisman. And me and him wouldn't have really talked on it because we were playing enemies, you know, in that season. But then in season five, then by the end of that, then we just became good friends and we stay in touch with each other. But just a beautiful, beautiful soul. So rare. And for someone from his background to such, to, to accurately play someone from Nidza's background uh, to the point where it's terrifying, it's so rare. Yeah. I actually only said this to Calvin the other day, wasn't it? Yeah. Because we were talking about it. Because no one knows where, like, everyone knows him as Nidge. Mm. No one actually knows him as Tom. Mm. And, if, like, if you hear him talking and you understand his background, look, it's unbelievable. Like, because I said to Calvin, why didn't he just get someone in that's actually from the flats? Yeah. Or someone like that to play that role? And he's like, Tarden, it's not that simple. But <laughs> then like, you have to be a great actor with star power. That's what I mean. Yeah. You need to be a great actor, have star power, and then do something authentic, the triple threat, if you want it, for a lead in a show. And he, that's the thing. Yeah. But he was he's so good, he becomes a different human being. Yeah. Like, I seen him one day being Tom on set and then becoming Nidge right in front of my eyes. And I went, what the fuck? Yeah, I got shivers. Yeah, and he took on Nidge's body language when he was just like, Tom, "Hey, my name's Tom, and blah blah blah, lovely to meet you, blah." And then he turns to the Nidge, and it's a different human being. Like you're going, "What the fuck?" Yeah, it's more testament has inside him. Like, yeah, do you know what I mean? Like, and you're talking about someone who would ne who's never more prepared. Like I mean, I've never in my life met an actor as prepared him to the point where it's mad. Like he never met a mistake. Like all the things I did with him and all the stuff I was in him, he never bumped a word, a syllable. A letter once, a pronunciation. He never bumped, not, he had it all the time, on, on, on. Whereas I'm fucking all over the place. Eh? Bump, 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 and I just stop. Oh, yeah, because if a load of sparing starts, I go, all right, don't even need to do another take, I'll just say the line again. Right? Because I'm just that kind of scattered actor. And, yeah. and there's room for every different type of actor, lads. But him never, never bumped a line. Like mm. 100% all the time. He knows your lines. Yeah. You miss a line, he knows your line. Yeah. He'll feed your line back to you. Yeah. That's how good he is. That's what I was saying to Terrence. It's a testament to how good he is as an actor. The and fact that you think he's from the flats. Yeah, yeah. You know, yeah. like that. And people like, oh, he told me, and this is a funny story if you think about the context of him telling me the story. So me and him are doing a Jim <laughs> Sheridan film, The Secret Scripture, right? And he was telling me a story about a little boy who idolized Nidge. And he's like, ah, I love Nidge, I love him. And he's from the inner city, this little fella, right? And he's seen Tom getting the ifta. 
And Tom was like, oh, I'd like to thank all the crew. Yeah. And blah, blah, blah. And it's going, Ma! <laughs> he starts crying, disappointed. <gasps> Nidge! Nidge is pushed and he's gay! <laughs> <laughs> and Tom is telling me the story, laughing his head off. Yeah. And it was just uh, so, so funny, but it's just a testament how great he is. Yeah, you know? it should, he's in the Avengers yeah. and all. Yeah. You know what I mean? It, but it's, you don't go that far in a craft without being a special human being as well. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Like, for, I mean for the inside out, you know. Like, we talked, and you remember that we did the live gig, and we were talking about how working class people, people from travel backgrounds, can have our own introverted snobbery of people over class. It's so <laughs> true. Ways, yeah. You know, and if, and I have a, I can have a bit of that myself, and then I have to check myself, you know. And you look at Tom, who's someone from a different background. I'm not saying he's upper, upper. I don't know what he really is, but he's definitely not sort of similar to my background, but he's the most beautiful human being who gives people so much fucking respect and he would just disarm anybody in the room from how genuinely authentic he is, you know, and he's so much fucking nourishment to give people. He's such a beautiful soul. And you go, this all, all this stuff is just a lot of bollocks, this division between each other, you know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah, so after that, John, like that's basically, that's the biggest thing out there. You're a big partner, you killed Bleeding Edge. What's the fame like? Uh, it's mad. I remember the first, the first bang of it was... Um, before I killed them, actually the headstone scene, uh, give it back, give, give, take it back with you and buy yourself a headstone, I said. And I went to the UB40 gig and I remember my t-shirt was tore off me and scratched the bits and I was put to the front VIP part at the front and he did the same. And then I ended up getting put up to a boot and all and like Ali Campbell's on the stage giving out the security and all. So like that's going, what the fuck? And then you've weird, I was like, I remember being in, in my house in Darndale with my friend Teddy and um this fellow was just texting me out of the blue and he was like, oh, John, I'm a big fan, big fan. I'm giving him a bit of attention back, of course. You know what I mean? He's a fan, he says. And he says, what's King of Travers? I love it, love it, hate now, I love it and all. And um, I said, oh, no, but yeah, grand, that's it, buddy, blah, blah, blah. And then I, I wouldn't text him back and he's going, why are you not texting me back? And I was going, okay, this is a little bit of a bung here. What's he talking about? <laughs> and then I went, listen, buddy, I'm not always online and, you know, I, I, I don't have to talk to everybody. I don't yeah. have to talk to you know, just, you know, leave it at that. So... He obviously uh, must have ended up getting gargled that night because I checked it, checked it the next evening with Teddy and I had loads of messages from him. I was like, John, you fucking sell out. If it wasn't for me, you'd still be boxed in fucking car parks. <laughs> <laughs> I swear to God, I remember reading it to Teddy and I was on the couch. I was on the couch in the Arnold house and I rolled off the couch with me and he was rolling all over the room. It was the best slag. <laughs> and I, gone, I texted it back 100%. <laughs> I was like, oh, what do you do? And then he, he tracked, he backtracked it then and says, oh no, listen, that wasn't me. That was me missus. Yeah. She said, what me like, yeah, I right. got afraid. And then he was asking yeah. me for fucking me address. And I said, listen, if you show up at my address, I said, I'm going to box the head off you. <laughs> so you do realise, you know, you meet people like, like I, met, I did meet somebody right before that last episode of Love Head. I met a fellow come up to me in Blanchetown Shopping Centre. And he says, um, need to be looking for you. <laughs> and I thought he was joking. And I was like, yeah, my thing, yeah. And he was like, no, seriously, he's going to catch you. He's going to fucking catch you. I went, oh, what the fuck? And his son come over and he's someone back. And it's mad. Some people just fall into the delusion of it. Like, so when you get a bit, you know yourselves, that you're getting attention, you see the kind of peculiarities of different people. Yeah. You see how people react to fame. And it's mad. It's mad. It's a weird kind of uh, energy and attention to give you. You're going, what the fuck? Yeah. And I went to, I went going because I had the chip on my shoulder and being a traveling and discrimination. And then I'm going, hang on, all these cunts are coming up to me wanting something now and this, that, you know, I had that kind of attitude. Now, never turn down a selfie ever in my life except for one time when I was in Lily Bordello's 
And a guy came over to me and he said, hi, uh, John, I'm taking a selfie with you. I said, you what? I'm getting a selfie with you. I said, oh, you're, you're getting a selfie with me, are you? Yeah, yeah, I am. Okay, I was like, what's this fella's like attitude? And I went, listen, just go away. Go away, I'm not dealing with you. I was looking up his security cameras here. Yeah, okay, well, he doesn't get knocked out then. <laughs> so he comes back in. I'm getting a selfie. Where would you be if it wasn't for me? I said, if it wasn't for you. I looked over at my friend Teddy and looked over at the boys. And they were like, don't, John, don't, don't. looking at the cameras. I like, don't, don't, don't kill him. Don't kill him. I just said to him, I swear on my father's grave, if you don't go, I'm going to take your soul from your fucking chest. Do you understand? And he just went, okay. Heard a little fart and he fucked off. <laughs> so you, <laughs> meet shit. Like, you meet people like that though and you go like, you, like do you, you want to kill them. You know what mm. I mean? But, but then you just, you know, most people are sound. You know what I mean? You get along with most people no matter what. Thank God are. we don't have any of them again. Yeah. <laughs> Everything is good. I think everybody's got your back. Yeah, yeah. 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 I think in Dublin, everybody's yeah. got your back, lads. I don't think anyone's going to fuck with you. <laughs> people, I think you're like their, everybody's brother. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, yeah, they just want to nuggie us. Yeah. And yeah. give us words yeah. and all. Yeah. It's a weird thing when you're an actor, people then act like, you know, like, and I had a bit fellas like, oh, do you think you're a gangster? I'm like, what? <laughs> I played a gangster. Do you know what acting is? Because they think you're that character. Like, yeah. do you actually fucking think it? Like, Mad, isn't it? That? Do you know this was a script and we all showed up and there was cameras and 200 people watching this? Like, you know, <laughs> yeah. you were imagining where the fucking characters. What the fuck are you talking about? Like, yeah, there's yeah. some lunatics out there, lads. You know what you I mean? You ended up in his gaff and darn that you mentioned yeah. a few minutes ago. Yeah. <laughs> I'm nearly sure yeah, Robbie no. Robbie it, was in the gap as well. It, it Robbie was, G. Yeah, yeah. Robbie, Robbie was that time. Robbie was in the gap. That time. Yeah. Because that was 2015. Yeah. And it was, I came back from Ibiza and I moved into back into my house with the actors of the film because one of the actors was very self-conscious about the world he was about to uh, deal with as an actor. Right? This gangland world and Darndale and Kulak and what have you. And he was, he was, unsure of himself as an actor because it was a world that he didn't know and too fucking right I'd be unsure of myself if I you know went to a world you know the Trinity world or whatever the fuck and I you know playing a character for Fox Rock I would have to know about that shit myself yeah. like so I didn't have to do any prep for the role I was fucking my whole life prepping yeah. for the role you know what I mean of Carver Gangsters obviously being a writer as well so mm. so he said look John we, I'd love it if we lived in your house and I says okay sounds so we ended up living in the house for four weeks before and then the three week of the shoot and um I took it as an opportunity for revenge because when we moved into the house, we got like 50, 100 noise complaints in a month and we didn't make any noise and it was our neighbours because we were travellers and they called their, 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 their Wi-Fi knacker, knacker neighbour Wi-Fi, something like that, some abbreviation of that because they thought we couldn't even access internet so they were that, yeah. you know what I mean? But um, I remember that and I said, now, and, and, and just to say, it wasn't all our neighbours, only a couple of them and most of them were fucking sound, mm. really sound. But it was the ones right next to us, each side of us. And uh, I remember that and I thought, hmm, I knew I was about to enter absolute chaos with this role and with living with the lads and taking on this part and living in Darren and I go to the blacker and we're doing all the things the characters did. And I said, this is the time. And my mother handed back the keys of the house, so I kept the house for the shoot. And I rang me cousin Bean. And I said, Bean, I said, you know that five-amp speaker you have? He says, yeah. I said, can I, can I take that for the next seven weeks? Plenty of parties and all that. Oh, yeah, just invite me to the parties. I said, no, man. So I kept that speak, speaker going for 24 hours a day in the house. <laughs> we were on set and all, you know, I had the speaker going. 
to the point where it was just it was madness, lads. Like the, the guards are come to the door, but you're living in Darndale, so the guards are only gonna come once. Yeah. So you just have to be nice once. Like, you know these fucking needs who fight the guards and all and get the fucking can't don't be as nice as part of the guards. I'd be like, oh sorry, sorry, guard, I didn't realize. Lads, what the fuck, lads? That's too loud. The neighbors. And then the guards go, all oh, right, no, what a he sound. And they'd never come back to Darndale twice. Like mm. that's that's doing that's doing the duty once. Yeah. We kept that going and telling you lads, we had the people crying. And sleep their professor, no, you two and EP. Yeah. <laughs> we, had, we had our fucking na- our fucking cuddly sack was EP for seven weeks. <laughs> and the people were crying, oh, John, please. And they were literally coming up to me, door, I'm not messing with you. Please, don't. What did we do to you? I said, You know what you did? It's racism for years. You know what you're doing. I want to get you back, right? Because <laughs> yeah. I'm able to talk because I know I'm on the way out anyway. I mean, if mother's back in the camp, she's living in the camp. I'm at the boy in her trailer, me and my brother. I'm moving back into the camp straight after this, right? We're not going to, it's going to take months to get us out of this house anyway. And I'm only a few more weeks left. I'm torturing these people to the end. <laughs> and it just suited, it just suited the buds I was on with the carbon gangsters anyway, right? And then we'd be going to the black and I swear to God, boys, we'd come, we'd bring like 50 people back to the house, like in a tiny darn little house. 50. Very few men. I won't lie. Yeah. The, rule was, <laughs> the rule was no men we didn't know. No lad I didn't know was coming. You know what I mean? At this point in time. And uh, just all women. Just because women are, are nicer looking. Yeah, and, yeah. Uh, um, so yeah, we'd party every night, party every night. And then we finished up and I know the time you would have went in it was when we finished the film. So we finished the film all madness, debauchery, you, you name it. Just crazy, crazy time. The, the actor who... Uh, who uh, wanted to stay stay there and do all that? He ended up leaving with a week to go because he couldn't take it. Yeah. And he was like, just ro- I remember roaring down the stairs, John, we need to fucking sleep. And I'm like, so I'm not going to sleep. Sleeping is when you're dead. That's when you go to sleep. And I'm losing my mind, right? Because I, I don't really give a shit. I'm in this fucking mad zone. We're all fucking keeping on the accents and there's all this stuff going on. And uh, we end up finishing. And I'm about to hand the keys back. And I said, like, fuck that. I'm going to keep this place for as long as possible. So I kept it as long as possible. So I would have had parties there regularly. And that's where you would have. Yeah. That would have been about. And if I, I'd say it's almost October, November 2015. That's when you would have been in there. Because there was about a month straight where I just did. Okay, anybody wants to party, they can party. Yeah. Do you know what? I think you're bang on the money with that one. Because I remember I would have went out with the boys out there. would have been Boki and Wardy and all them. And I'd nearly sure we were in rights. And we went back to Igaf and Darndale. And we went from that gaff to another gaff. And I remember walking in, the door was open. So I remember thinking like, because you know when you're going to a gaff and you don't know and you're like, oh, who's gaff is this? Because you don't want to be real with her at and, and you don't want someone yeah. to take you up the wrong way. Yeah. And you're like, no, no, you're grand. And the door was open. I was like, very weird, the door's open. And there was no furniture on the sitting room. Yeah, yeah. And that amp was in the corner. Yeah. The amp was in the corner and had a, like a, a, a laser and strobe light on it. And that was there. And I remember standing there and being like, this is fucking <laughs> deadly. And I was like, I goes to book who's gaff is this? He goes, Do you know John Connors, the actor? I goes, Yeah, he goes, Yeah, this is his gaff. Yeah. And I goes, What? And he goes, Yeah, this is his gaff. And I was like, Where is he? And he was like, I oh, don't bleed, no. I, I was probably in another party somewhere else. And I remember thinking to myself, right? I was like, This is not John Connors' gaff because he'd be here. Yeah, yeah. And then I was like, No, no that's because, because we were handing it up. And yeah. Just to me, it was just like, Whatever, I'll party there sometimes. Yeah. And I'll just hold the keys until I can. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? And we were, it was your gaff. And I yeah. think Robbie G was there with us. Mm. I remember thinking this is fucking mad like to me I, I was in a few guy parties in Darndale and I remember thinking like everyone was always sound no one gave a bollocks as long as you were nice to them they were nice to 100%. you and they were very uh, hospitable as well they'd yeah. bring you in do you want a drink bro do you want this do you want that I was like I don't do that and I don't drink neither and then they'd be like you don't drink do you want to make you something to eat, bro? Like, <laughs> do you want to take a filler roll? Yeah. It's ba- what happens? Bro, it's bleeding half four in the morning. Yeah, you can barely hold your jaw together and you want to make something to eat. I've never ever had a fight or seen a fight in a Darndale house party, ever. 
and I'm going to them since I was since about six, 15, 15 I used to put them on anyway, 15, mm. 16, right up until fucking 25 that time and I never saw a fight in a darn little party. You never seen people being aggressive to each other. No, and How that's it. All open arms, yeah. Has. And don't get me wrong, there, there's fucking social problems there without a doubt and there's a drug problem, whatever. But to counteract that, there's fucking beautiful people. Yeah, that's, the most beautiful that's people what we talk about all the time, being from the NSC. Yeah. In the media, it's mm. like, you don't want to walk through there because you know what can happen to you. It's mm. all the crime and this and the other. So how, how many times mm. do you walk down the road and see people getting robbed or see bleeding fights? It's actually, it's actually rare enough. 100%. Do you know what I mean? Mm. Without a doubt. Without a doubt. So you see it a bit in the blacker. Outside the club in the blacker. Ah, there used yeah. to be a bit of it in the blacker. But uh, it was more about if the, someone started on the bouncers and the bouncers were rootless, you know, there's a couple of Russian fiends there and they were yeah. they just... So it's like the living room in Queens. Yeah, we saw it there. Yeah, uh, Queens. Did you ever used to go to Queens, John? No. Uh, oh, I, Condra. Fucking, yeah, yeah. I'm from You used to be a Royal Rumble outside point, that. An odd point there, here, there. Yeah. Uh, every single point. night we're out the Royal Rumble on that road, which is weird because it's from Condra. It's very busy. Yeah. But for some reason, after Queens, it's like the road used to close down and well, there'd be 20 lads having a shot. wasn't it? It was. And then they used to do this stupid idea. I don't know who came up with it. It was like two euro over a vodka and Red Bull. 250 was it? And I remember thinking like, Dang. Do you know what I mean? That's dangerous. Hormones through the roof, the high alcohol levels, and then you expect <laughs> what to happen. Like, yeah. Everyone live at the same time. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, fucking madness <laughs> it was. <laughs> oh, stop. John, I have a quick question for you, yeah? Don't take this up the wrong way, by the way, sure. either, yeah? You have a lot of your stories you talk about, like, there's like violence in them mm. at the end of them. Yeah. Do you feel like you had anger issues or still have anger issues? Oh, yeah. And do you feel like you've walked on them or do you still feel the same way? Or? Yeah, no, definitely anger issues, man. That all comes from the childhood. I had that very bad. Still do. Yeah. But now I know how to control it better. Right. I, it, it depends what it is or it depends what button gets pressed. Like if I feel like I'm getting backed into a corner, that's where that's how you get me angry is think that you're, you're removing the options from me or you're trying to, in a way, bullying. Again, mm. we all get triggered triggered by things in our childhood things that shaped us things that shaped our mentality the thing about anger though man is this and i'm saying this a while like sometimes you have to be angry and sometimes anger is justified you know it just depends on where you direct that anger you know and for me the best the best way for me now is like as i used to go head to head with politicians and speeches and this that and the other and, and going on the front line and fighting things directly um and what happens is the system takes no fucking prisoners and it takes you out, right? And we're never going to beat the system. You're only one man, you know? So for me, putting anger into art is the best thing, directing it into art because then you can express yourself through your anger and then the anger can transcend and become something, hopefully, that affects other people and shows them the value in it. And that's what I'm doing now. And it took me... I, I learned that years ago and then I forgot it because it's not like... Life is not like, you know, in a, in a film... It's not like, the, you know, people ask, what was that one moment that changed it all? Or one moment, you know, that's bollocks. That's yeah. happening in real life. Because you have that one moment, you learn from it, and then you realise you didn't learn from it. And you mm. make the same mistake again. And then you learn again. And then you might learn again. And then you think, ah, oh, that bit of trauma I had, I resolved that. No, then you realise you didn't, you didn't resolve it at all. You buried it. And then it comes back to haunt you again because you didn't fully resolve it. And it comes around the cycles. Because life isn't black and white. It isn't absolute. It isn't extreme. It's all that gray in between. And you constantly have to keep learning, uh, keep your head in the ground, keep conscious of what's happening around you. Because um, it keeps coming back around, man. It's, 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 a, it's a cyclical, 
psychical, psychical. That's what it is. It keeps going around in cycles. So all the things that would have bothered me in my teens keeps coming back around and came back around the last few years and COVID and the sort of fucking mass mental illness of that spiked it and all these things come up and, uh, you know, and, and put me, I, during that COVID, that first lockdown, I lost my mind, man. I had a mental breakdown. Like, literally, my mother thought, what the fuck? Like, my mother thought I was going to have to fucking lock me up. And these things come back around, you know. So anger is always there and I hope I never lose my anger but I hope I direct it in the right, in the right direction, mm. you know, in the right people and against and and in the right way, like at true art. Because I've, I've realised, man, you know, I, I was on the front lines trying to kind of change culture in the ways I'm doing things, like fighting on the front line directly with people or fighting the system. You're going, this is so fucking idiotic and egotistical because what really changes culture is art and, you know, I'm, I'm, it, it's not the other way around. Politics does not change culture. Politics is sewage. You know, and it's people who can fight in the sewage that become successful in politics. And just because you're successful in politics doesn't mean that you're a good person. In mm. fact, it would probably suggest the opposite. That's something that I did actually notice though, John. And I think I was really, I did really peak in lockdown with you. From watching online, you were constantly there, constantly grinding and going at someone. And when you said you, have a, you had a breakdown, mm. it's actually like... It's like now, it's like, yeah, obviously you did. Don't look him back retrospectively. Yeah. Point yeah. so it's 2020. And you're like, cause this fellow was going through stuff. Sure. Because you were going at everybody. And then when obviously yeah. asked us to do sleep with the entity and we met you, I was very reserved. I was like, oh, is this going to be this like angry man who's very opinionated? Yeah. And like, I'd be afraid to say something in case he disagrees and then we have an argument because I'm very opinionated. Yeah. But then I met you and I was like, oh my God, there's this perception of this man that's not who he is. And then in the meantime, you're having these intellectual conversations and you're very articulate. You're able to, how are you able to express yourself through your vocabulary, everything? You're like, this fella's like, you know, I don't know, poker face maybe because he has like this, he has these tricks up his sleeve, you know what I mean? He, yeah. he's, he's fucking well-educated. Well-educated, not just in the classroom, but on the streets and in life. Well, definitely not in the classroom, actually more from life. Because I always say the funny thing when people talk about they need a degree for acting, I go, you need a degree in life. Mm. And for art in general, I think you need a degree in life or fucking a PhD in life if you can get it. And I certainly have a lot of life experience and I've learned a lot from life and I've been hurt a lot and I've felt a lot of anger and I've blamed people and I've made a lot of mistakes. But for me, it's going back to be humble enough to admit when you're wrong. Exactly, you know, yeah. People go like sometimes, you know, with this cancel, cancel is, don't apologise. No, we were talking about it beforehand. Yeah, do apologize if you're in the wrong. Exactly. Yeah. But if you're not in the wrong, don't apologize. Die. You know yeah. what I mean? Like you have to you have to have a, a yeah. principle. And that COVID was the perfect storm for me because I already have a bad anxiety and winning out of that. When that came out about and we're seeing people in Italy dropping the streets. You know, now Italy have fucking the oldest population in the world or one of them and they're the most social people in that they touched each other the most so their infection rate was through the roof and it was the original COVID that was really bad. So I was thinking this is the black plague. Everybody I know is going to die and my biggest fear is losing people. You know, because I lost my father young and loads of family members, loads of friends of mine through suicide and whatnot. And I'm going, geez, everybody I love is going to die here. Like, and this is, so we, you know, it's, if you fast forward back to March 2020, this is a different, it's the black plague, we think. So I fucking lost the head, like literally lost the head and and uh, went into psychosis, like literally psychosis is what I went into. And my mother was like really worried about me and I got COVID straight away very early on and it was really bad, got really bad. And I was at the time 22 stone, um, like 17 stone now or whatever and lost a bit of weight. 
And uh, I'm smoking 50, 60 fags a day. I'm off them now when you smoking a drink. So a little bit of health things make a big difference. But but that was like, I thought I was dying then for every night. In the, I, was, I remember being in the bed and I wouldn't call an ambulance because I was afraid I was going to take up a bed for an old person because we were told don't unless you're really bad. So, But they're saying if you feel like you're going to fucking, if you, can't, if you can't breathe, ring an ambulance. But I would ring an ambulance. So I'm going every, every night in the trailer locking myself in going, and, and this is me breathing, me breathing space was this, that's all the breathing I had. And I was doing that for like eight, nine hours straight each night. And then daytime it would it would subside a bit and I would sleep. And that was like it was like that for ten days. And then I stayed in the trailer by myself for another twenty days. All my family looking in going, You're mad, man, my hair's fucking up and all this. They're going, What's wrong with you now? Come out. But we didn't really know when you're when you're getting out and all yeah. that. So when I came out of that, what was what what could, why that was the perfect song for me, because remember I telling you about my father and the suicide and whatever. I always believed that I was gonna die before thirty one. Because my father did. He died at 30. It was a self-fulfilling prophecy. I always believed it. So when I got into that year, 2020, that was the year where I was coming up to my 31st birthday. I was coming up January 5th the next year. So I was in my 31st year. Do you know what I mean? Mm. So I believed before 31 I was going to die. Always believed it. My whole life. That's why I lived that way. I lived as if I was going to die. But then I lived fast. Took risks. Took chances. Didn't care. Fuck it. Yeah, let's do it. Fuck it. Oh, it's dangerous. Let's do it. Fuck it. All my life. So 2020, I'm nearing that time and it's in the back of my mind. And you've COVID and you've the mental health and it was like a perfect storm. And then the Roger Gagarman incident came around. You know all about that stuff. I was just going to mm. ask you yeah. about that, yeah. Yeah, so we'll get into that. I never talked about that publicly. So the Roger Gagarman thing came around with Peter Tatchell and Peter Tatchell, who like people get misinterpreted my apology, actually. Because some of them tried to take it as if I apologised for coming after Peter Tatchell. No way. And I don't think he should be around any of our Irish politicians. I don't. Um, so, but what happened was I went to the extreme with something because my mental health and I ignored the fact that the, Roderick was, was getting roasted out of it by bad people and I ignored it because I was going to the extreme and there was an internalised there was an internalised um, suicide going on there which I was going fuck it I know the consequence of this is going to be dire for my career and in a way it's like I'm in suicide I knew it deep down I knew it unconsciously and all the thing unfolded and I ended up on the stage. And again, people say, people again, there was distinctions that should have been made there. Like some people think I shared a stage with the National Party who was a different protest, but you don't want to, I wasn't. I was on with iRexit and Renewer, a Conservative Party and a Populist Party, not far right. So far right people want to kill my people. Mm-hmm. Imagine a traveller getting involved in far right. But still, there were people I shouldn't even get involved in. I shouldn't have been up on that fucking stage. It was a symptom of me fucking mental health, but no one wants to talk about that. They just want to say you're X, Y, or Z, you're far right, you're, you're white supremacist, you're misogynist. I'm going, if you people understand how far it is for me, you, wouldn't, you don't know me. I've nothing but fucking love in my heart, but I fight for things I believe in, and it, that was the perfect storm for me. And I realised I went too far, and I realised I went too far in Roderick, and that's what made me apologise, nothing else. Like, there's a conspiracy there, that John apologised because X, Y, and Z. No, I apologised because I remember my grandfather telling me, if you're ever wrong, son, it's okay to apologise. My grandfather was like my father. It's okay to apologise. In fact, you have to say sorry when you're wrong. And I knew I went too far. And then what happened was, when I apologised, I deleted Twitter, got out of there. The aftermath of that was like unbearable. I went, what the fuck? Because I saw what was out there, what people were saying about me. How they were falsely represent me. How they were thinking I was a person that I was not. How they were thinking I was someone who was the opposite of who I am. And that, because I'm a sensitive person, very sensitive, you have to be to fucking be an artist, that nearly killed me. And I was at the point where I was going, I think I have to kill myself. Like I genuinely think 
I, I don't know how I'm going to take this pressure. Like, people think I'm someone that I'm not. That's They think I'm the most despicable kind of person. And I was going, Jesus, how am I going to get out of this? Like, And my friend Ternan, who's a psychotherapist, you know Ternan? Mm-hmm. He's a cognitive scientist. He knew I was going to kill myself. He knew it. He told a few people, I think John's going to kill himself. I'm going to, we have to try to save him, basically. And Jimmy Smallhorn, a good friend of mine, and Jimmy said, Ternan, see that script? The Black Guelph that you and John wrote, you were trying to make a few years ago. You have to make that film. Tell Johnny has to make that. He has to direct that film. And Ternan went, yeah. And they kind of plotted together to get me thinking about this script, which was bringing me back to what saved me in the first place, creativity, and I forgot it. So Ternan said, let's make this script. And this was during lockdown. And this was the script that everybody turned down, Screen Ireland wouldn't make. Uh, they said it was too dark, or they said it was the wrong tone for you as a director. They're telling you how to be an artist. Wrong tone for you, the director, for the first film. It's about intergenerational clerical abuse, but more broadly about how we inherit trauma and how unresolved trauma comes to collect. Sound familiar? That's exactly mm. what I was going through. So in a way, it was kind of therapy, and I put it out there to the universe because everybody wanted to interview me uh, about the controversies and whatnot. So I, I did an interview just to get the, the message out there about the film, and then an investor got in touch and funded the film, and we went out and made the film. Just before we get into the mm. film, do you feel like people are using you for them rallies? Yeah. Now when you were totally, at a low point. Totally naive. You First of all, using my empathy against me in a way, you know. But these people are very sharp, manipulative people, and they have to be because they're trying to bring people over to the dark side. You know what I mean? Mm. And they fooled me with their happy faces and smiles, you know. Um, but really, when you look into it, and I suppose I should have done my due diligence and looked into it more, but I didn't. I ignored it all. And it was all a part of this... Uh, the self-destruct button going, fucker, who cares? Who cares? Yeah. And then the regret of that was probably the biggest regret of my life. You know, people say you don't regret some things. Now, I do regret that, but now it brought me to a different thing as well. So maybe I don't actually thinking out loud, maybe I don't regret it because I learned a lot. Mm. I learned a lot from you, that. You definitely have, John. Yeah. You've grown and yeah. you can see that. Like when I met you, I remember being taken back and it was like when we left the Hellfire Club that time, that's when we were like, he's, he's going to be at our next live show, 100%. Yeah. Yeah. That fella, get him on. But I feel like I feel like I know what you mean when you say that you like you don't look around. No, you don't mean that like in a in a smart way. But I think you have to make certain mistakes in life to learn from them. Like yeah. I've made horrible mistakes in my life, and I've been advised like years previous growing up, don't do this and don't do that because they'll end up being like very like you'll get down the wrong road or this will happen or that will happen and you say ah oh, yeah 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 you have to sort the fuck up yourself yeah. to go right. I actually don't want that. And that's what I feel like happened with you in certain situations. You you, you fell down, you made the mistakes, you held your hands up and apologised, but you're like, I actually needed that to happen to get me where I am now. Yeah, well, it kind of got... Do you know what? Here's the alternative, I'd say, to that was actual suicide because that was that, was that self-fulfilling prophecy. So I I committed suicide career-wise, really, and reputa- with reputation, but I escaped actual suicide. Yeah. Something was going to happen that year. Something was going to happen. And the aftermath of it was like... Hmm. I just have to check out now. And again, creativity comes in and goes, oh, you're not going to check out. You have more to give. So we decided to make that film, 10,000 case a day, no shops open. We got this money, low-budget film, shot it in January in the depth of winter. And it was hell. Now, I mean hell, the worst production, the hardest thing I've ever done. I'm smoking 50 fags a day. I'm the way to me. I'm drinking 50 coffees, Red Bulls, I don't even drink them anxiety, you name it, just trying to keep a li- making this film, having to beg actors not to leave the set because of the conditions that we were de- making and, and the danger and COVID scare had to shut down, restart, 50 grand for the COVID costs. 
oh, where are we going to get the other money? Where are we going to get the other money? Editing it, realise we made a whole fucking mistake. We have to reshoot, do reshoots. We have to shoot, shoot 50 scenes in three days, going all around Dublin, like shooting like a documentary group. Hell, it was hell to make this film. And I had to email the actors in the middle of it all and I went, here's the reality. That was a rough week, the first week when we got shut down. Harsh conditions. There's no fucking toilets. There's no, you name it, there was no nothing because we had no budget and there was nowhere to go because uh, the whole country was shut down. We were the only film that was making a film. Only team that was making a film in the country. And I said, the reality is this. Um, got me on to be lead actors. Two or three of them were going to walk. I said, I apologise for it all. I apologise for the inexperienced crew and some of the crew were great but some weren't. I apologise for the small crew, for the lack of facilities. I apologise for the weather even though that's not my fault. <laughs> and for the lack of budget and all that. But... I said, look at the subject matter. It's about intergenerational clerical abuse. The pain people went through in the industrial schools, the Magdalene laundries, the mother and baby homes, and how their kids inherited that trauma and it was passed down. If you look at 1979, Pope John Paul visits Ireland. That was the same day the first shipment of heroin entered Ireland. It coincided with the perfect moment. You had all this pain and trauma from the schools, from the Magdalene laundries, and you had the answer. So I got on to the actors and I went, if you think this is hard, what we're going through, and, and to be honest, like some of them were dead sound. I said, we have to go through this. I said, in a way, we have to go through the pain. Because right, if we do this film without pain, it's not going to be anything. It's authentic, yeah. It's not authentic, so we have to suffer. So it was like the hardest thing I ever did. And then coming out of all that and then spending a year and a half, like, without getting paid a cent, I didn't get paid a cent for making that film. But I learned so much. And it was, that film was dealing with a lot of my own family, my own line, my own psychology, especially coming out of the Roderick O'Gorman thing with me and mental health fucked because the theme of this film was mental health. I was able to bring so much to the story. And, uh, and now, it's, now it's coming to fruition. So it's premiering now in, in Oldenburg in Germany. Um, and uh, this, weirdly, weirdly, oddly, it's premiering on the 16th of September. 11 years exactly to the day since the Irish government shut down the Regis Bureau compensation fee, which is what the film's about, to the day, the anniversary. And what are the chances there? And loads of weird, loads of weird, weird signed up videos around the film, loads of freaky stuff. So, and then the next day, they're doing a special world media screening. And the only thing I'm raging of is I wanted to be at the button factory on the 17 is Jordan McCann and Dublino. My brother's promoting it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's his yeah, first thing yeah. and it's sold out. It's a huge achievement. I would have loved him to be there to support it. <coughs> you know what I mean? It's his first kick and it's a fucking button factory and he sold it out. So it's amazing. Yeah. So I'll miss that. But, but uh, and I wanted to be there. I love hip hop lads. Yeah, yeah. So, but, but it's going to be, but it's good that he's doing something successful. I'm doing something successful. My brother Joe's loads of fellas are working for him. So, it's not all gloomy, you know, we're all doing well. Yeah. We've all done well out of what we were given in life and we're all maximising it, you know? Yeah. Where else? You're using that energy. Using it like, you're, like what you're doing, you know yeah. what I mean? Where will we be able to see the film, John? So, premiere there and it's going to go for probably six months in the festival sequence and then it's going to go to the cinema in March in, uh, in Dublin. It'll premiere in March in Dublin. So we're a whole, a whole big journey before then and see what happens on the festival kind of critical circuit. Yeah. And then when it's right then, it's going to come... It's going to come, this film is going to be like um, like, like a tornado because this film is going after the Irish government, successive governments and its institutions because the institutions chose to protect the power of the institutions. The government chose to protect the power of the institutions over the interests of its people. And the Black Wealth is a group of people in ancient Rome that wanted to uphold the power of the Pope and anybody who went against them were either massacred or banished 
like Virgil, the great poet who wrote Dante's Inferno, in which we take up a kind of loose inspiration for it. So it's a, it's really a protest film at its core. And it has gangster stuff, which is the result of the trauma. And then that intergenerational stuff, which is, I think, if you look at the inner city and if you look at the inner city and you look at what happened in the inner city in the late 70s, early, early, uh, early 80s with heroin, um, the heroin only worked because of the trauma. Yeah, you yeah. know what I mean, and that's kind of what the point of the film is. Give it well. purpose, yeah, yeah. Uh, just touching on that, the last Magdalene Laundry, I was saying it to him when we were in last yeah, week. Yeah. It's on Chatham Street, closed in like ninety four, ninety five. It was after I was born. Ninety four, yeah, ninety four yeah. was. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Wow, it's still there now. We we're only looking at it the other Jeez, day, and I said that, that the time one, and it was in the inner city. Yeah, Chatham yeah. Street, right at the back of my mask. Yeah. That's mad, lads. Yeah. Uh, John, I have two more questions for you. Yeah. Uh, the, probably a bit deep, but go for it. Do you ever feel typecasted? Yeah. I do, yeah. But here's the thing. I got over it now because I'm starting to write my own stuff and I'm actually going through a film in uh, October. It's the best script I ever read. And it's a fella called Dylan Stagno from Darndale. You met Dylan at the gig. Red-haired fella. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. He's from Darndale. He's a genius. He went to Trinity College on a scholarship, won loads of awards there and then won loads, loads of script writing competitions all across the world. Obstantly script to Hollywood people. And I'm going to produce this with Kevin Tracy at Promenade and a few other people. And it's about a fella, a manic depressive, who goes to a mental hospital and he falls in love with a, with a schizophrenic. And it's a dark, romantic comedy. Best thing I ever wrote. But uh, Sorry, best thing I ever read. But the typecasting used to bother me, and now it doesn't because, do you know what? Acting is such a hard industry. Take what you got. <laughs> yeah. Do you know what I mean? Take what you got. And because I'm so young as an actor, I'm 32, you know, as an actor, as a baby, the good roles don't happen till mid-40s or 50 because that's mid, mid-life crisis. So that, that's when you're confronted with all the big conflict as a man. So the way I'm looking, I'm kind of just holding off on the bench, doing whatever the fuck I can until the right one hits. You know what I mean? And then yeah. I'm directing as well, which I've kind of, directing I have more of a purity around it, as in I wouldn't just direct anything. You know what I mean? Whereas I'd act in early, I think, just as a mercenary now, I don't give a bollocks. Yeah, and, yeah. I, and I'll turn it down. If you quit, all right, I'll do it. As long as it's not absolute garbage or, or it's something that's, you know, politically too fucking mad or something. Yeah. I, I fucking do well, it. Because Liam, you're going... Liam Cunningham said was that, like, he'd never advise his kids to get into acting. Yeah, it's the highest unemployment rate like, as an yeah. occupation, yeah. It's a tough game, boys. Yeah. Because there's so many t- talented actors out there, you've no idea. Like, in Dublin, you want to see the amount of talented actors in Dublin and Ireland we have. Unbelievable. Oh, that you That you <laughs> would know, that you would not know. Yeah. And they're never going to get a gig. And, you know, there's four or five casting directors and they have the people they like and they call in the same people and... You know, it's that's it's it's not it's not very fair, really. It's not very fair, but it is what it is. You know, um, I remember Stella Adler reading a quote from Stella Adler, who was a famous teacher, acting teacher uh, of Brando, Marlon Brando, and De Niro, and she said, "Oh, so you have talent? What else you got?" And that's acting. Hmm. Talent's not good enough. Yeah, you know. Uh, and then the next one is so this really kind of popped into my head earlier when I was on the way in. So this happened during the lockdown. There's a lot of virtue signaling going on that. Family Guy did it, and I, I thought, this is crazy. It, it was virtue signaling, but any voice actor that played a person of colour and they weren't the same ethnicity, they took the role away from them. And then you had people coming out and apologising for stuff that people weren't even offended by or whatever. So I want to put to you as a traveller man, John, how would you feel if someone who wasn't so a settled actor played a traveller? Uh, one that pops into mind, Brad Pitt and Snatch. How would bro, you feel about that? Bro, it's fucking in the name. It's acting. Like, do you know these people that get the fucking... Brad Pitt plays a traveller, right? It's not accurate, but it's the funniest shit ever. 
Mm. The Travelers love Brad Pitt playing a Traveler. Because it's fucking Brad Pitt playing a Traveler. Yeah. It's funny. Like, when was everything Brad Pitt was going to play a Traveler? Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Now, we didn't do it accurately, but it was kind of a comedy. So it was really funny and entertaining. Anybody should be allowed to play anybody. Obviously, I can't play a black person. You know, you could voice anything, but I mean, I couldn't play an actual black person, obviously. They can't play an actual white person. But everything else, this is about acting, about becoming different people. That's what you want, you know. And, and in terms of, like, settle people to play travelers, that's been the story forever. And and he'll keep doing it. All I would say is, like, you, like I would say to any actor, if you're playing any character, you serve the character. So do your due diligence, do your homework, and do the best job possible. You know what I mean? So what I'm more concerned about is people writing about travelers, more concerned. And again, they should be allowed to write whatever they want. But I'd be even more... I'd be even more kind of cautious with people like that because they have way more power. Writers have way more power. And whatever you write about a people, that becomes a norm, especially if it gets swallowed up by pop culture. So I'd be more worried about what right I'd like I'd be more wanting writers to do it justice. Actors are gonna fucking some actors are gonna do great, some are not. Mm. You know what I mean? Like I'm doing a traveler film next year and I'm gonna cast settled actors, of course I am. Of two or three parts there where there's fucking amazing actors there, like I want Brenda Fricker to play one of the parts. Yeah. You know what I mean? That's the whole thing about an actor, you know what I mean? Bec- becoming somebody else, you know? It's all about serving your character and giving your character a bit of dignity. Like, and even, because nobody, like, villains don't know they're the villains. Villains think they're the hero. Yeah. We all think we're the hero in our own life. You know what I mean? So you need to get an actor to understand that, no matter who they are. You're playing a villain, you don't play a villain, you play the hero of your own story, you know? So acting is a craft, bro. And it's the thing of, you know, art. I don't believe, see, for me, in art in general, you know, like I don't believe painting's art. I don't believe singing's art. I don't believe acting's art. I don't believe architecture's art. I believe art is a standard. I think acting can be art. I think singing can be art. Painting can be art. That can be art. I think it's a standard, right? And until then, I think it's about a craft. And that's the way I think of acting. It's a craft, like your fucking carpenter, like whatever. You learn the fucking tricks, you know, and see all this arty-farty shit, and, you know, I became the character. No one becomes the character. You still know that there's 200 people in front of you and a fucking camera and lights and a fucking build set. Don't tell me you thought you were the character while you were taking directions from the director. That's the most pretentious shit ever. You can be in the moment. You can hold on to things. You know what I mean? Like, I remember, I remember, I remember being on stage one time, and I remember... Someone came up to me and it was really emotional, apparent, and I'm crying and this, that, and the other. And Ireland's, Ireland's call at the One Man Shore Road. And someone came over to me afterwards. And he went, John, that was so powerful. It was amazing. It was amazing what you'd done there and how you went there. You must have been really going to it, that dark place inside of you and taking it out of you. And I went, I'll be honest with you. During that monologue, I spotted my brother in the audience. And I thought, oh, I didn't know he was showing up, my old brother Joe. Is he going for a pint afterwards? And then I thought about where we're going to go to eat. Oh, that little Mexican place around the corner in Georgia Street. That's a good little place. So the reality is the audience don't even fucking know what's going on. That thing that happens between an actor and an audience, that alchemy, that special magic thing, you have no control over it as an actor. So that's why you just get good at the craft. Don't think about it and go into the depths of hell. Just get good at the craft, the technical side of things, and then let it all look after itself. And play anybody you want to play, and that's the way actors should be, because that's art. Art is not about fucking rules. Art smashes the rules. There was an Irish artist that uh, had a great quote, and he says, I don't beat around the bush, I burn the bush. And that's art. Art should be like that, burning the bush. I think that's a great way to end the podcast, boys. <laughs> Fuck me, John. We could do 10 parts with you. <laughs> yeah, talking bollocks. Fuck <laughs> yeah, hell. We've done a good job at that today. Yeah. Talking yeah. all, yeah. But, yeah. Um, 
Yeah, I think that's the end of that, John. Listen, it was a pleasure. Yeah, honestly. thanks for having so, me. So your new film's premiering Germany yeah, next Friday. Yeah, in 16th. Yeah, people just get on the Blackwell online and they'll stay in touch. But by the time it hits Irish cinema, it's going to be a while. But uh, but yeah, it's going to be good. Build the hype train, though, John. Build the isn't hype it? train, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, thanks for coming in, John. Thanks we really do appreciate that. it. Pleasure. You wrap this one up, Terry. Yeah. Take us out, Kino. Boom. Subscribe to this podcast for free on the Go Loud app. The hip knocker.